Welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 7, March 2020. Expertly recorded the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial In the grim, far future, there are only submission deadlines. Warhammer 40,000 is a bit of a theme this month. Not only do we examine the unique universe of the 33-year-old tabletop game, but we also have a guide to bargain hunting online for those willing to get the glue and paintbrushes out, and our mini of the month sports a twin-headed eagle or two. Warhammer isn't the only grim and dark offering this issue, though. Our original fiction is a chilling short story. We review a smart new zombie novel and find out why kaiju zombie mashup Attack on Titan has become the anime to break into the mainstream. And we examine the genre of cosmic horror, taking a look at some of its more interesting iterations in recent years and considering why it might be uniquely compelling for audiences today. But the daffodils are out, so it's not all scary. We explore the world Disco Elysium, probably the most innovative PC role-playing game of recent years, review the thoughtful film The Bestowal, find out how to run an urban role-playing game campaign, and kick off a new irregular series on the classic science fiction novels every lover of the genre should read. We hope you enjoy reading it as much as we've enjoyed writing it. Why you should watch Attack on Titan Attack on Titan has enjoyed massive popularity since launch, both in its native Japan as well as in the West. Its original premise is both terrifying and ridiculous. What's all the fuss about? The best way this writer can articulate the premise of Hajime Isayama's Attack on Titan is to compare it to the likes of Godzilla and other Japanese kaiju films. The anime takes place in a fantasy world where humanity is hopelessly insignificant in the wake of a new apex predator, the Titans. Colossal, humanoid monsters who exist for no reason other than to eat humans in violent and bloody spectacle. Nobody knows where the Titans came from, and most of the remnants of humanity survived behind the protection of three giant walls, Wall Maria, Wall Rose, and Wall Sinia, built by the gods to keep the Titans out. For the last hundred years, people have lived under the shadow and safety of these walls without incident, until the first episode of the series, when the skinless Colossal Titan appears. On that day, humanity remembered the fear of being controlled by them, the humiliation of being imprisoned. These are the opening words of Attack on Titan's protagonist, Eren Jaeger. He is a helpless onlooker as his home is destroyed. Wall Maria falls, and the Titans overrun his town. Eren watches in horror as his mother is eaten alive by a Titan, and is forced to flee with his adopted sister Mikasa and childhood friend Armin. These events leave Eren with a single burning goal kill all titans. A year later, the three friends join the military in hopes of fighting back against the titans and reclaiming the world for humanity, and the main story of Attack on Titan begins. Anime has always been an acquired taste for Western audiences, and rarely breaks through into the mainstream. Attack on Titan seems to appeal to both experienced and first-time viewers of the genre. It has many different points of entry for different kinds of fans, a captivating world filled with morally dubious and complex characters, and an evolving mystery. There's heart-racing action as the soldiers fly using the undeniably ridiculous Omnidirectional Mobility Gear, ODM, while the choral soundtrack fills you with a sense of hope and victory, or dread and despair as the humans are torn to shreds. 
The Titans wear an almost blissful look on their faces as they kill, and it's here that Hajime Isayama's art shines. His heavy, sketchy line art makes the Titans deformed yet familiar. They smile, but it's unnaturally wide, showing unsettling rows of teeth, and their jaws unhinge and snap down on their prey. In many ways, it's easy to compare the Titans with their Western counterparts, zombies. They seem mindless and insensate. They swarm and outnumber. They're near unkillable. And they've driven humanity to the brink of extinction. In this, Attack on Titan could perhaps be called a kaiju-zombie hybrid. Hajime Isayama's art emphasises the desperation in the characters' faces. The raw emotion of watching a comrade being eaten, or the realisation that the same will happen to them. There is a moment where an entire cavalry of the Survey Corps, a branch of the military dedicated to fighting back against the Titans and reclaiming lost land, comes back with nearly every soldier dead. The crowd looks on and asks, Did their deaths contribute to humanity's victory? Or did they give their lives for nothing? This is meaty stuff, and Hajime Isayama does an excellent job of portraying the desperation and hopelessness of his characters in this scene, as well as the horror of the Titans. However, it is the work of animator and director Tetsuro Araki that brings the explosive action to life, making it flow at breakneck speed and ensuring that the combat sequences are never dull. Attack on Titan's story is a slow burn. The simplified goal of the narrative is to learn the truth about the Titans and overthrow their reign, which the audience learns is connected to whatever Eren's father had stored in his cellar. Three seasons in, we've only just reached this point, that may turn some viewers away, but the drama is so fast-paced with such intense bursts of action that hours disappear when you're watching. Each episode bleeds into the next, always contributing to an overarching story. If it takes four episodes to establish the mechanics of the world and its players, then the fifth shows you what it's like to live in this world, and the build-up pays off. Each arc ends with a cliffhanger or twist to reel you back in. It's engrossing. You don't want to stop. The speed at which you can blitz through episodes makes Netflix a natural home for the series. It was one of the first anime to be released on the service. The series' success on its initial broadcast and later popularity on specialist anime streaming services like Crunchyroll made it an attractive prospect for the more mainstream distributor. The episodic structure allows the introduction and development of characters to come across organically as the world opens up. The Battle of Trost District arc, which spans for episodes 5 to 13, is a good example. Titans are broken through a segment of Wall Rose to the town of Trost, and we see how each of our three main characters, particularly Eren, respond to this repeat in history. Dedicating several episodes to a single conflict adds weight to both the triumphant highs and the crushing lows. As the battle begins, the colossal Titan from the first episode makes a return. Eren, confident he's not the same scared child from his past, is ready to face his nemesis. But viewers, expecting the protagonist to single-handedly beat back the Titan invasion and win the day, will be disappointed. The series' world is a cruel one, and no one is safe from harm. Not even our main characters. Attack on Titan's characters are some of its biggest assets. They're interesting and complex, and this is especially true of its three leads. Eren... Mikasa and Armin, who each bring something unique. What Armin lacks in physical attributes, he makes up for in strategy and tactical intelligence. Mikasa is a stoic badass who slays the Titans with relative ease, a difficult feat within the show's universe. She's warm towards Eren, 
acting as his self-appointed protector. Aaron himself is brash and self-assured, but despite all his talk, he's naive about how his world really works. He's neither special nor particularly strong, despite his role as the hero. It's no surprise in a setting as bleak as this that Attack on Titan deals with some heavy themes, particularly the cost of war, post-traumatic stress, and patriotism. Patriotism is especially relevant to the show. Every child is brought up to consider it an honour to join the military, in the service of humanity. In practice, however, few people are willing to risk more than joining the military police who garrison the innermost city, the furthest from the Titans. It is established very early on that citizens and elites expect soldiers to be willing to die for them. Even superiors in the military will abandon their troops when faced with possible death. Meanwhile, soldiers trapped with Titans crashing at their doors choose to kill themselves rather than be eaten. This is arguably one of the biggest factors that turns people off. This show is depressing, and doesn't spare you from getting a good look at some of the worst aspects of war, which won't be for everyone. The violence is sometimes graphic, to the point that Attack on Titan could be considered horror. The tonal whiplash between soul-crushing moments and action-packed ones can be jarring as well. It's a roller coaster, and not everyone will want to ride. However, this is also why Attack on Titan is worth watching. Despite the bleakness, its heroes push forward, determined to survive. No matter how hopeless the situation, they still choose action over grief. In Mikasa's words, if I can't beat them, I die. If I win, I get to live. Every step taken is one closer to a world humanity can reclaim. This theme of hope throughout the series is what makes every minor and major victory resonate. You empathise with their suffering and cheer with every titan killed. Comradery is another noticeable theme throughout the series. The 104th Cadet Corps are a tightly bonded group, forged by their victories and losses. Their small character moments bring them to life. When Jean rallies his comrades, he starts showing the makings of a leader, paving the way for developments later. Ymir's love for Krista and their adorable interactions bring some much-needed lightness. Sasha's antics stealing food are both amusing and a reminder that in a world like this, poverty and food shortages would be common in smaller towns, giving both her personality and the show's world more heft. There's always something deeper going on, even in moments that might be written off for comedy. In quieter episodes, the cadets spend their time on mundane tasks, such as cleaning out an old fort. These calm moments can feel alien in such a violent world, but they serve as a much-needed breather, giving the viewer time to think about the greater questions the show poses, and for the relationships between the characters to develop. Attack on Titan's mystery is both its most compelling and its most potentially frustrating element. Where did the Titans come from? How can they be defeated? What's in the basement? All these questions are set up in the first episode, yet when the credits roll at the end of the first season, none of them have been answered. Even three seasons later, there are still mysteries left unsolved. If you're not interested in that kind of storytelling, or just don't have the patience for such drawn-out arcs, Attack on Titan may not be for you. However, viewers who like to pick up on every hint that's dropped and piece together the clues woven into the story will be in their element. When the answers come, it's especially gratifying, not least because each one is further evidence that every twist has been planned from the beginning. This is a show that rewards you paying attention. Attack on Titan works hard to get you invested in its world, its characters and its narrative. 
It's horrifying in places, tender in others, and strikes a good balance between its lows and highs. If you've never seen it, you have the chance to experience its whole unfolding mystery for the first time. This writer envies you that. Classics of Science Fiction The Left Hand of Darkness In this new semi-regular feature, we look back at the seminal works of science fiction. The stories that outraged, baffled and appalled. The books that posited answers a generation before anyone thought to ask the questions. The novels that bent society's collective consciousness around them and seeded popular culture and humanity's vision of itself to this day. From Frankenstein to Foundation, these are the books that blew our minds and created our genre. The Left Hand of Darkness, by Ursula K. Le Guin, is ostensibly two texts presented together. The Journal of Genli I, a diplomat visiting the world of Gethen, and parts of the diary of Therem Hath Rem Il Estraven, a senior politician and bureaucrat of one of Gethen's nations. Genli I is an envoy, sent to prospective worlds to warm them up to the idea of joining the technologically advanced and enlightened Ecumen, an off-stage alliance of civilised worlds. The meat of the story concerns his travels on Gethen, the people he meets, and their differing reactions to his mission. The novel's universe is faintly sketched. We see nothing of life within the Ecumen or its marvels, and nothing is mentioned of the path humanity could have taken from Le Guin's 1969 to the distant future. Almost no exposition is given. Tantalisingly, at one point Genli suggests that the Gethenians may have been a genetic experiment, but we're left with no idea by whom or to what end. The story insinuates that the Ecumen has arisen after some kind of dark age or cultural regression. Gethen, or winter, is a very cold world. It is mostly ice, and in summer only an equatorial band thaws. Gethenians are hermaphroditic. They enter Kemer, or heat, once per month, in which they briefly become either male or female, in order to have sex and breed. Nobody is forced to work while in Kemer. Few people marry. Kemmer houses are not brothels, and there are no gender roles. The setting is original and intriguing, but it's not the setting that makes The Left Hand of Darkness a great novel. Most obviously, it was, and arguably still is, a radical thought experiment. What would people be like if you took sex out of the equation? The luggage of gender-defined expectations that Genli brings with him is a source of misunderstandings throughout the story. Gethen is not a kaleidoscopic sci-fi panorama, partly because it's too cold, admittedly, but also by design. This is a novel about people, not exotic alien landscapes or wacky species. It isn't a space opera. The people it depicts are complex and richly textured, though. Their food, their customs, their folklore and their dialects are all fleshed out through Genli's stumbling attempts to understand them, as well as Gathenian myths and stories peppered between the chapters. Bleak and mundane it may be, but many science fiction settings look two-dimensional compared to Gethen. Most importantly, for this writer at least, The Left Hand of Darkness is a powerfully affecting love story. It is one of the most poignant I remember, of any genre, and is certainly one of the most moving in the science fiction oeuvre. Le Guin is coy with Estraven. We see them a bit in the opening chapters, where they're established as an important but frustrating figure for Genli, and then they duck off stage for the majority of the novel, to be occasionally mentioned or alluded to until the wonderful climax. This is a love story without consummation, gender, sex, or even acknowledgement. And yet, to this writer at least, very rarely in fiction have two characters seem so matched. 
The Left Hand of Darkness earned Le Guin the first Hugo Award and Nebula Award ever won by a woman, and, since it was published in 1969, few conversations about sex and gender have taken place in the science fiction world without reference to it. Le Guin herself called the book a thought experiment, and it certainly is experiments with gender that have earned it its fame. Interestingly, Le Guin wrote in 2009 that her wintry world was to be unique in one aspect. It was to be a world that had never had a war. And that, once decided upon, this point of difference led to the idea of a genderless society, and not the other way around. Some readers have taken aim at Le Guin for not going further with the idea once settled upon. To a modern reader, the choice to give the Gathenians all male pronouns certainly blunts the impact of their unsexed nature, and makes it easy to ignore. The use of they as a gender-neutral singular pronoun wasn't unheard of in 1969. Le Guin herself acknowledged that this criticism had a point in 1988. The Left Hand of Darkness is certainly an important book, but it's much more than that. It is great not just because it was part of the change, as the author herself put it in 2009. It is also a gripping adventure story, as well as a deeply moving account of love and friendship. Disco Elysium. Role-playing with me, myself and I. You wake up in a room. You have total amnesia. And there's a murder to solve. Think you've seen this all before? Think again. Disco Elysium is a murder mystery, a point-and-click adventure and a role-playing game, and it's one of the weirdest, most innovative versions of all those things in recent memory. We take a look at one of 2019's most spellbindingly strange games. Every now and again, you can sense you're in the presence of genius. It might be when you read a beautiful line of prose, or see a breathtakingly composed cinematic shot, or watch a particularly well-constructed scene in a play. I got that feeling playing the opening of Disco Elysium at a Games Expo in early 2018. The first thing the game tasks you with is waking up. To do this, you must have an argument with your ancient reptilian brain, which advises you to cling to peaceful non-existence, and your limbic system, which warns you that awareness of the meat thing you are currently inhabiting will only lead to pain and humiliation. Eventually, you talk yourself into consciousness, to find that you are mostly naked, lying on the floor of a trashed hotel room, and have a hangover so severe that you've forgotten literally everything about your life. You will learn that you're a police officer at the hotel to investigate a murder. How much you find out about the crime, the game's setting, and your own past is mostly up to you. In some ways, this is a very familiar setup. An amnesiac protagonist waking up in an unfamiliar room is a staple opening in fiction, used in everything from Roger Zelazny's fantasy classic Nine Princes in Amber to the cult sci-fi noir film Dark City. But that first argument, before your character comes to, shows off all the things that make Disco Elysium feel different. It takes place in darkness, eschewing the game's striking watercolour-esque visuals for a first impression and allowing the writing to do all the work. The quality of the game's dialogue is immediately apparent. Depending on your choices, it swings from evocative, your consciousness ferments in blackness, 
no larger than a single grain of malt. To poignant. I like pain and burning light and wanting things from people who don't want to give them to me. To laugh out loud funny. Help! Someone! Cut my head off! It's trying to murder the rest of me! Most importantly, it introduces the game's core mechanic, the conversations you have with yourself. In character creation, Disco Elysium looks like a fairly typical RPG. There are 24 skills, and your starting proficiency in each is governed by one of four attributes whose values you can set at the start of the game. Your attributes remain fixed, but your skills can be enhanced in various ways by spending skill points, changing clothes, even by taking drugs. The game's big innovation, though, is that your skills are also inherent parts of your personality and will pop up throughout play to provide you with more information, urge you towards certain courses of action, and even to argue with each other. A player with a high score in authority, for example, will find it easier to assert dominance and intimidate other characters, but the voice of their authority will constantly appear in their head to urge them to do so, whether or not it's a sensible option. One who invests in electrochemistry can spot when characters are using various intoxicants, but will find it hard to resist taking them themselves. This approach not only shows off Disco Elysium's writing, but also adds a layer of replayability to an otherwise pretty linear story. Varying character builds don't simply have alternative ways to solve the problems they're presented with, but will experience entire scenes and relationships differently. The game continually runs passive checks against your various abilities to decide how much information to give you. You will be told if these succeed, but not necessarily if they fail. A player with a lot of visual calculus will learn very different things in a scene and possibly come to different conclusions than one whose strength is Inland Empire, an uncanny intuitive ability named after the David Lynch film. The other major way Disco Elysium allows you to develop your character is through the Thought Cabinet. Conversations with other characters or repeatedly making dialogue choices that support a specific ideology will give you access to thoughts, which you can then place in the cabinet. These range from the practical. Hobocop allows you to stop paying for accommodation and sleep on a park bench. To the philosophical. Mazovian socio-economics espouses a communist worldview to the downright horrific. Advanced race theory unlocks terrible racist dialogue options. Aside from whatever gameplay benefits they might give you, these thoughts give a real feeling of shaping your character to match your conception of them. You can spend a skill point to unlock space for a new thought, or, interestingly, to forget an old one. Anecdotally, many players initially internalise advanced race theory in order to solve an early puzzle, but later in the game consider it worth the extra resource to forget it. They don't want that rattling round the brain of a character they've become attached to. There are two main schools of role-playing in video games. Either you take on the role of a specific protagonist whose personality and background is essentially fixed, or you play a blank slate, free to be whoever you choose. Disco Elysium's amnesiac protagonist attempts to walk a line between the two. Your character's past is immutable, and the same for every playthrough. Their present, though, and how they choose to interpret it, is left wide open. You can't change who you've been, 
but you can change who you are, is one of the game's themes. You can search diligently to find your real name or rechristen yourself something more exotic, embrace the extremes of the political right or left, or remain resolutely in the centre, decide that you are the reincarnation of an influential philosopher trapped in purgatory, or accept that you are a washed-up alcoholic who's done some really bad things and resolve to be a better person in the future. The game's mechanics do make one serious limitation on this freedom, however. Failing an active skill check will cause your character to speak or act in ways you didn't intend, and even passing one may not produce the result you expected. In one memorable incident in my first playthrough, I attempted to join a game of bull, and my character promptly shot-putted a bull into the nearby river. These failures will not necessarily spoil your game, and may in fact produce some of its most interesting moments, but players who want close control over everything their character does and says should be advised to save often. Disco Elysium has its problems. It's from an independent studio, and although the finished product is by and large very polished, there are areas in which its modest budget is noticeable. Loading times are long, especially on launch. It can occasionally lag or even crash. And although it's full of interesting diversions, it fundamentally has a single main plot which must be completed in order. There is no ability to quick travel, so you will spend a lot of time running around on the map, especially if you are stuck on a puzzle and don't know exactly what you're looking for. In the first two in-game days, it's possible to lock your playthrough into an unwinnable state without the game actually ending. Because some events only happen at certain times and are necessary to progress the story, players may find there are days when they have nothing to do but read a book to pass the time, which can feel clunky. And however time-honoured the mechanic, it's still a bit ridiculous for your character to be forever changing their clothes before attempting different challenges. Beyond these problems, this is the kind of game that the reviewer's staple phrase not for everybody was made for. It requires a lot of reading, and a couple of tense face-offs notwithstanding, there's no real combat. Although it's beautiful to look at, the world it's set in is an ugly one, a dystopian nation full of poverty, racism, violent class conflict, and police abuses. Most of all, the protagonist you play as is far from a conventional hero, or even a conventional anti-hero. He's a middle-aged, out-of-shave, rattled alcoholic, who's made a mess of both his personal and his professional life. He's often greeted with disrespect or even flat-out mockery, and you'll constantly run into problems caused by his past actions. It's possible to love him, to embrace his flaws, and enjoy being the absolute disaster of a human being promised in the game's advertising. It's even possible to redeem him. But either way, you'll have to work for it. Sometimes it's hard to see how to breathe fresh life into the RPG formula, at least for video games. They can certainly have cutting-edge graphics, exciting gameplay, gripping, well-executed storylines, but by their nature, what a player can and can't do in them must be thought of and pre-written by the game's creators. No matter how wide the open world, how varied the combat, how smart the AI, a video game can never offer the total freedom to act given by a tabletop RPG and a responsive games master. Every now and then, though, a game comes along that does something new with the mechanics of RPGs, or places them in the service of a radically different story from Start as a nobody, become a god, save all of existence by punching the worst person in the world in the face. 
Disco Elysium does both these things. It's not a power fantasy. You spend some time in a well-realised world that has more problems than one person could ever solve, and you leave it having made a few people's lives better or worse. This isn't the only video game RPG with a low-key story to tell, but they're rare enough to be exciting. More than the story, though, it's Disco Elysium's dialogue that sets it apart, making the main characters' skills facets of their personality and having them constantly interact with the game as both talents and urges felt like a genuinely innovative mechanic. I never got tired of being interrupted by my skills' observations of the world and recommendations for how to act, particularly when they disagreed. Counterintuitively, by breaking the protagonist down into his component parts and giving them each a voice, the game created someone who convinced as a whole human being. Watching him fail to muster the willpower to stand up for himself at a key moment or successfully argue back against his urge to relapse into drug use felt real and moving. Finishing the game sober felt like a harder one and more meaningful achievement than solving its central mystery. Disco Elysium never made me feel like a god, but it did make me feel like a person, and I suspect that may be harder to do. Being an eBay Eagle In 1990, I bought my first Games Workshop miniatures. I tried to paint and glue them and made bad choices, as most do when they start out. The wrong glue, cheap paint, lack of colors, a bad brush, all can ruin what you're trying to do. Many of those miniatures are in a bag of shame waiting for me to one day go back and help them. Slowly, I learned better techniques. I bought better paint, took care of my brushes, and established a relationship with superglue. I made models for role-playing games, Warhammer, and Warhammer 40k, and kept working on them. I like seeing my models on shelves. They remind me of the times I've shared with them in games and the effort I put into painting them. Many people give up with miniatures. The gorgeous box art of vehicles and soldiers in their comic book action poses are a definite draw, but replicating anything like those images with paint, glue, and patience is incredibly difficult. It is arguably in the moment when a teenager is surrounded by a box of expensive plastic parts that they learn whether they like wargaming or not. This is why you see a lot of abandoned wargaming projects appear on eBay after Christmas. These are often presents that an enthusiastic would-be gamer tried to put together before losing their way. Perhaps they used spray can paint and damaged the plastic. Perhaps there was too much glue involved, or perhaps something broke. Usually, the results have a defect or flaw that has drained enthusiasm for the project and the bits and pieces find themselves for sale online. If you are an omnivorous wargamer, or just a hobbyist who likes painting and building this kind of stuff, these sort of discarded projects are a great place to start expanding your collection. It is also substantially cheaper than going to the shops. However, 
you do need to know what you're looking for and what you can cope with. I get a bit of a buzz out of fixing things and making stuff from discarded pieces. I rarely get a chance to play Warhammer or Warhammer 40k, so the modeling and painting is my main focus. I'm not the best at either, but I do enjoy what I do. I began exploring eBay back in 2006 when I revisited my miniatures collection. Gradually, I've progressed from quick paint-and-glue fixes to stripping models and converting them. I'm now dabbling with scratch building. I try to keep track of what I'm buying and compare that to published retail prices so that I can get an idea of how much I'm saving. Back when I started, pretty much everything miniature-related on eBay was a second-hand sale. That meant you were bidding on models that had been left in cardboard boxes in people's lofts or under their bed, and there was always a chance you'd find something special. These days, eBay is more like a shop, with a lot of online sellers and prices for common items have evened out. When I began, I was still collecting lead and white metal miniatures. These days, almost everything is plastic, or occasionally resin for a particularly specialist piece. My rule of thumb was always to pay no more than one pound for a miniature figure. I still try to stick to that for the most part, but I buy a lot more plastic these days. The time of the week you browse and the time of day an auction ends really affects the sale price. Miniatures put up for auction that's due to finish at the weekend usually go for a fair amount more than those whose auctions finish during the week. Saving stuff on your watch list is a good practice, but bear in mind that these days the watch list information is collated and used to promote popular auctions. The more people save, the more likely an auction is going to appear on different pages. Making use of the ending soon function is a good idea if you're browsing and not too fussy about what you pick up. Things often go unsold, so keeping an eye out for what's expiring is a way to find something that may have been mislabeled or misspelled. Keep in note of your keyword searches. Fairly generic terms like Warhammer or 40k will get you a long list of results. More specialized searches related to specific armies are good, and so are phrases like job lot or bits, as these will show you more general lots. What you're really looking for are items that are being sold by people who are not wargamers or modelers, as these people are more interested in getting rid of them and are less concerned with how much the items might be worth to a collector. Going through the pictures and looking for things you recognize is a great way to identify things you are looking for and need for a particular project. But be careful. Your ambitions can explode on you. I was looking for some sentinels recently to complete my squads, as they can be fielded in threes, so I browsed some listings and ended up with a bunch of extra tanks that clearly needed some rebuilding. The last two minutes of an eBay auction are when most people send in their bids, so you need to be prepared. Either set a high bid limit, or be ready to watch and counter someone else's bid. 
A lot of users use automated software these days that can send in bids in the last few seconds. So don't count on winning something until you've actually won it. And if you don't win, don't worry, something else will come along. It's great fun receiving parcels for the post. Whenever I get a box, it's a little like Christmas again. Opening up a packed parcel of plastic miniatures is exciting, particularly when you start looking at what you've received and seeing what other bits you have in your collection to match them up with. Detailed below are a few tips on how to fix up what you've bought and make something cool to add to your collection. The things you've bought come from someone else's home. So you may need to take care with how you handle them at first. When I first started collecting miniatures, I was working with lead figures. Lead is poisonous, so washing hands and taking other precautions was a sensible idea. With plastics, there's much less risk, but you may want to either regularly wash your hands, at least to begin with, or wash the stuff you've bought. The latter can be difficult, particularly if you have small parts in the box. If you're looking to make something for an army, it's important to check what weapon options the soldier or the vehicle in question has. Most information can be found online or in the latest publications. Luckily, newer editions of the rules tend to expand options rather than render older ones obsolete. But it does happen. Warhammer 40k is in the 8th edition at the time of writing, so it's worth checking. You'll also need to determine what you are making your army for. If it's for games with friends, you'll probably have fewer restrictions on what you can do. There are plenty of parts and all sorts of model kits that can be useful. However, if you're going to try to play in Games Workshop tournaments, you may well have to stick to using only Games Workshop produced parts. Most models you receive will have been painted with water-based acrylics. Back in the 90s, lots of people used enamels, which are horrible to remove. You can get some fairly good environmentally friendly paint stripper these days, which is much easier to use than the methylated spirits of old. An old toothbrush and some hot water helps. You do need to be patient with it and prepared to put in some work. Both Plasticard and Green Stuff are really useful if you're looking to fix vehicles and larger models. Green Stuff, also known as Nidatite, can also be useful when working on smaller figures, particularly if you're looking to adjust the position or remake a broken foot or something similar. The plasticine type stuff comes in yellow and blue strips which you mix together and shape to suit your needs. I usually use a blunt knife for this. If the knife blade is wet, the green stuff doesn't stick to it, so keeping a glass of water to hand is useful. You could also get liquid green stuff which you just paint on but your brush is not going to be usable for anything else afterwards, so I don't recommend it. Plastic hard requires a bit more work and is usually useful for something structural on a vehicle. Measuring and cutting your pieces to size is important, 
particularly if you're making panels for both sides as you'll need them to be the same dimensions. Making a template with cardboard really helps with this. Sometimes the cardboard template is easier and better to use than the plastic art. Making and painting models is something of a never-ending task when you get into it. You may find yourself bidding on a lot to get a certain part to complete a project you've already started and end up with a set of new projects to work on. Painting and sculpting something to a standard you're happy with should be the objective, and knowing when to put your work down to start something else is important. If you're inspired to bid on some unwanted models and save them from the bad glue, thick paint, and broken bits, do write in and let us know. We would love to see what you create. Self-Pub Review Carl DeVarza Chaos Nova is, in their words, a creative gang in fiction verse, in which several writers and roleplayers get together to write in a moderately pulpy science fiction universe. Cow DeVarza by David No looks like it's the third book in the canon. The eponymous station rests near the Void Cloud, a Bermuda Triangle-like anomaly whose presence hangs over the narrative. The story follows three or four perspective characters, idealistic and rebellious Elise, avuncular Guillaume, and dutiful Rafa, as they deal with a new threat. This is military science fiction through and through. The dynamics of hierarchy are a major plot driver, and most scenes seem to contain a crisp salute. The story plays out over quite a short time frame, seemingly a few days, though that is muddied somewhat by the author's insistence on bespoke measurements of time. Tantalising allusions are made to the wider fictional universe, like the Netrix, the Void Cloud and the Reclaimers, but the actual plot events mostly don't concern these. It's clear that this universe contains a lot of secrets, and has been well planned, and the fact that Noah only gives us glimpses of it both gives the setting heft as well as entices the reader to find out more about this world. This is a universe of fractured alliances, lone city-states, dangerous abandoned systems, and isolated bastions of civilization, holding out against chaos and piracy in the void. Cow Devaza feels like a TV series. A lot. Every scene is a minute or two long, dialogue heavy, and takes place on the bridge of a spaceship, a restaurant, a crew member's quarters, or a similarly easy filmed interior location. There are no panoramic verd-sized space battles here. Everything is told through the third-person perspective of a main character. This almost feels like a screenplay novelized. Within a few chapters, I had mentally assigned each main character to a member of the Babylon 5 cast. Like that TV series, the characters of Kaldavaza aren't clear poles on a moral compass. There are a few truly villainous characters, and those that are present aren't really fleshed out. They serve more as plot points than antagonists. This is a story of ordinary, multifaceted people struggling with a mystery rather than a good versus evil quest, and works well. The space station itself is an island of civilization and strength, but it seems to be surrounded by mostly lawless and sparsely populated systems, leading to interesting questions about isolation versus imperialism. Cow Devaza doesn't do much new. If you're looking for exciting ideas about the future of humanity, or fresh new alternatives to sci-fi tropes, look elsewhere, such as the genuinely innovative but ultimately unsatisfying Duchamp vs. Einstein, reviewed in issue 3. That's not really a criticism of this novel though, more of an expectation setter. That accepted, there are criticisms. 
The author is perhaps slightly too cagey about the fundamentals of this universe, for example. Agreeable, though, it is to be tantalised. A touch more information about the assumptions upon which the story is based would have helped me understand the stakes and visualise the setting more. Similarly, the writer assumes that we're more familiar with the characters than we are. The book quickly introduces a slew of characters and perspectives in the first few chapters. If there had been a test at 50 pages, I'd have failed it. Later on, there are a few occasions on which characters' quirks are referred to in a way that should spark affectionate recognition, but largely doesn't, simply because we don't know the characters that well. There are other minor quibbles. A major subplot is a romantic relationship between two perspective characters. This ups the stakes for those involved and allows the characters to visibly grow and change. But in this writer's embarrassingly extensive experience of workplace romance, the rush from awakened interest at the office party to going concern is a little brisk and leapfrogs the trepidation and subterfuge usually involved. Characters spend pages wrestling with their consciences about the death of one of their faceless people while cheerfully blowing up spaceships full of baddies. It's good to see characters reflect on their actions, but the sentimentality rings hollow here. However, I devoured this in a handful of sittings over two days, which speaks for itself as recommendations go. Despite the intimidating start, I did find myself rooting for this family of oddballs, and I'm keen to learn more about the universe of Chaos Nova, a compelling and fun readers for lovers of the genre. Visions of War The Grim Dark of Warhammer 40,000 Even if you've never set foot in a games workshop store, chances are you've at least heard of the company's biggest intellectual property, Warhammer 40,000. To a newcomer, the vast array of characters, factions, locations and events accumulated in over 30 years of fiction can seem overwhelming. Let us introduce you to the grim darkness of the far future. It is confusing to the uninitiated, partly because this is both a consistent fictional universe as well as a complex tabletop game. In terms of mechanics, the game plays similarly to many war games. Players take it in turns to move units and attack targets according to rules and limitations set out in the official guide, and roll dice to ascertain whether an action is successful. The range of models available from Games Workshop provide tabletop wargamers with the opportunity to make and paint their own armies, and these armies are the heart of the franchise. In addition to this, they produce a whole set of fiction, known as the Black Library, to tell the story of Warhammer 40k. That story is intimidatingly deep, and continues to grow. Unlike a certain franchise that takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Warhammer 40,000, often referred to by fans as simply 40k, is set in the distant future of our own galaxy. Most games of Warhammer 40,000 would occur somewhere between the end of the 41st and the start of the 42nd millennium. These dates are often abbreviated to M41 and M42 respectively, following the in-universe calendar format. From Earth, known as Holy Terror, humans control the largest empire in the galaxy, the Imperium. Most of Warhammer 40,000's story focuses on the efforts of this Imperium to preserve its existence, and this faction includes many of the most iconic and popular armies among players. The easiest and most effective way to introduce the Warhammer 40,000 universe is through its factions, the various armies that make up the meat of the 40k experience. Most human factions in the game fall under the twin-headed eagle banner of the Imperium, including the Adeptus Astartes, more commonly known as Space Marines. 
easily recognisable by their bulky and often brightly coloured power armour, Space Marines feature in the majority of Warhammer 40,000 publicity and are Wargaming's most recognisable mascot. Organised into chapters, the Space Marines are monastic, genetically enhanced super-soldiers, armed with some of the Imperium's best technology and conditioned to be fearless in battle. Chapters of Space Marines are easily recognisable by their heraldry, from the deep emerald of the Dark Angels to the icy grey of the Space Wolves. Every starter box for the game since 1993 has included Space Marines of one type or another, most commonly the blue-clad Ultramarines, and they are an excellent choice for beginners due to their versatility. While best at ranged combat, Space Marines are durable and no slouches in close quarters either, but with enough variety in their units to fit any playstyle. Foremost of the other factions belonging to the Imperium are the Astra Militarum, originally called the Imperial Guard. Drawn from countless human worlds, there are a variety of models for these armies, so the aesthetic of these soldiers can vary wildly. They serve as the bulk of the Imperium's armies, equipped with cheap, mass-produced flak armour and las guns. The soldiers of the Astra Militarum become a powerful force on the battlefield when coordinated properly by experienced officers and supported by heavy tanks and artillery. Where the Space Marines are a flexible elite force, the Astra Militarum rely on large numbers of low-quality troops, whose effectiveness is boosted dramatically by orders from their commanders. There are many other Imperium factions. The Tech Priests of the Adeptus Mechanicus, the Battle Sisters of the Adeptus Sororitas, the Covert Officio Assassinorum, and the Inquisition. Each has a part to play in the war machine of the Imperium, and many have their own rule sets and army lists. Next, the Forces of Chaos. This otherworldly force is the greatest threat to the Imperium. The Forces of Chaos originate in the Warp, an alternative dimension which exists alongside the material plane. Every thought, emotion, dream or nightmare experienced by anyone in the galaxy becomes real in the Warp, and every conceivable hope or fear manifests as a demon. These demons hunger to see the material world fall to their depredations, slipping across the veil to sow havoc wherever they can, whether it be through the mind of an unprepared psyker or a hasty bargain made by a desperate soul. Yet, despite its threat, humanity finds great use in the Warp. Psychers are individuals able to harness the power of the Warp to manipulate reality. Ships also use the Warp to make faster-than-light journeys, though doing so is exceptionally dangerous. While every demon is unique, the vast majority are subservient to one of the four dark gods of chaos, the ruinous powers, rulers of the Warp and foes of all life. First among them is Khorne, the Blood God, who desires nothing more than endless carnage and slaughter. His demons are the most classically demonic, possessing horns, red skin and a lust for blood. They excel in close quarters battle, especially against heavily armoured opponents thanks to their hellblades. Next is Tsinch, the changer of ways and master of fate. Tsinch is a master of magic and manipulation. His demons are formless creatures of flame and disorder, with a penchant for twisting and mutating mortals into strange and unpredictable shapes. On the battlefield, they employ large numbers of psychers and random effects, with plenty of tricks to skew the odds in their favour. Third is Nurgle, the jovial plague god who governs all sickness and disease. His demons are swollen, putrid and rotting, yet grin and chuckle as they spread their infectious gifts to all they meet. 
These are the toughest and slowest of demons, using their sickly resilience and poisoned weapons to slowly whittle their foes down. Finally, Slanesh is the god of excess, a sadistic tempter whose daemons shift between being enchanting beauties and crab-clawed monstrosities. Lightning fast but very fragile, Slanesh armies overwhelm their opponents with negative modifiers and flurries of vicious attacks. There are several chapters of traitorous space marines who worship the dark gods of chaos, including the Death Guard and the Thousand Sons. In battle, the chaos space marines function similarly to their loyalist counterparts, though with a slightly stronger focus on melee combat. They also have access to powerful demon-possessed war engines, as well as being able to take detachments of demons as allies. A pivotal story in the fictional history is known as the Horus Heresy, when a full half of the Space Marine Legions betrayed the Empire in favour of chaos. During the 30th millennium, a man simply known as the Emperor created the Space Marines and reunited the scattered colonies of humanity. However, during this Great Crusade, some of the Space Marine leaders, mighty warriors known as Primarchs, turned to the worship of chaos. Foremost among these traitors was Horus, the Emperor's most trusted son. His betrayal, and the subsequent war between the Space Marine Legions, became known as the Horus Heresy. It culminated in the obliteration of Horus during the Siege of Terror, but not before he was able to mortally wound the Emperor. The Emperor's body was interred within the Golden Throne, a life support device which has staved off his demise ever since, but from which he is incapable of any kind of direct rule. In his absence, the Imperium has stagnated, though he is worshipped as a god. As for the traitor legions of Space Marines, they retreated to the cosmic warp storm known as the Eye of Terror, where their resentment has festered ever since. Believing themselves to be the rightful inheritors of the Imperium, they have proved a persistent threat, and over time, countless worlds have fallen to them. Chaos is not the only threat faced by humanity. Several alien civilizations, termed Xenos in Warhammer 40,000, exist in the galaxy, seeing humans as fools, upstarts, or vermin to be eradicated. Akin to Tolkien's elves, the Eldari are tall, slender humanoids with pointed ears who possess some of the galaxy's strongest psychers. Their empire predated the Imperium by millennia, collapsing when their own corruption and debauchery created the chaos god Slanesh and the Eye of Terror. Most of their race was wiped out in this event, but a few enclaves had the foresight to survive. Building immense interstellar arcs known as craft worlds, the surviving Eldari travel the galaxy living lives of asceticism, lest they fall to the temptations of Slanesh once more. Following the psychic divinations of their farseers, the Eldari prefer to manipulate galactic events as puppet masters, though they are not above directly involving themselves in conflict. Characterised by hit-and-run guerrilla tactics, the Eldari utilise highly specialised aspect warriors, who devote themselves to mastering a single facet of combat before moving on to another. As such, this is an army of specialised, fast-moving units, dealing high damage, but easily lost. Not all Eldari escaped on the craft worlds. Many of the Old Empire's most corrupt individuals escaped the destruction of their race in the pocket realm known as the Webway, a labyrinth dimension existing between reality and the warp, used by the Eldari as a safer alternative to warp travel. These Eldari aristocrats became cursed, their souls and bodies shriveling away unless sustained by a diet of the suffering and misery of others. Known as the Drukhari, 
These sadistic warriors often send raiding parties into the galaxy to kidnap slaves for their amusement and sustenance. Lightning fast, employing hovering transports and all manner of inventively cruel weapons, the Drukhari rely on speed and terror to win their battles, preferring to toy with their prey rather than engage them head-on. More common than the Eldari, and considerably less civilised, the Orcs are among the most numerous Xenos of the galaxy. Inspired by the Orcs of Tolkien, Dungeons and & Dragons and Warcraft, released in 1994, the Orcs have a certain humour that the other factions in Warhammer 40,000 lack. While savage and violent, the Orcs' love of combat and generally low intelligence make them a light-hearted addition to the faction roster. Their technology should by all rights fall apart when first switched on, yet often manages to perform beyond expectations. Luckily, an orc is more inclined to club someone over the head than go to the trouble of shooting them, and as such, they are one of the strongest close-quarters armies in the game. An army of orcs is known as a WAAAAAAH due to their distinctive war cry, and while a terrifying prospect, it relies heavily on the guiding hand of a war boss, the biggest and strongest orc in any group. If he is defeated, the collapse of the war soon follows. Orcs on the tabletop are subject to chaotic rules, which makes them an unpredictable but entertaining prospect. In contrast to the Orcs, the relatively young Tau Empire is a small yet highly advanced civilization of blue-skinned aliens, with more interest in diplomacy than warfare. With a strict caste-based society, the Tau foresee a bright future, ignorant of many of the galaxy's dangers. They are always willing to accept new allies into their growing empire, with even some humans defecting to join their cause. However, they are unafraid to bring the power of their military firecast to bear, should their attempts at peace be unsuccessful. Always on the cutting edge of new developments, Tau warriors favour powerful, long-range energy weapons over melee combat. They employ agile, armoured battlesuits to carry heavier weapons and strike from unexpected angles, while robotic drones provide fire support shielding capabilities, or accuracy-enhancing marker lights. Even more advanced than the Tau, and even more ancient than the Eldari, are the Necrons. Once creatures of flesh and blood, the Necrons long ago forsook their mortality in favour of nigh-indestructible android bodies. Retreating to stasis tombs some 65 million years ago to escape a galactic calamity, the Necrons are just beginning to reawaken and they are displeased to see so many new races squatting in the ruins of their empire. Taking the appearance of mechanical skeletons, much like the T-800 of the 1984 film Terminator, with a healthy dose of ancient Egypt in their looks and language, they wield technology so ancient and advanced it seems as magic to others. Relying primarily on close-range firepower and teleportation, the Necrons are one of the toughest armies on the tabletop. Their warriors even able to recover from fatal damage thanks to self-repair systems. The final threat to the Imperium, and potentially the greatest after Chaos, is the extragalactic menace known as the Tyranids. Appearing from the void beyond the galactic edge, the Tyranids are a terrifying race of insectile predators, inspired by the Xenomorph from the 1979 film Alien. Descending in swarms upon inhabited worlds, the Tyranids consume all organic matter they find, leaving worlds as desolate husks before moving on. They possess no conventional technology, instead undergoing a constant process of adaptation to meet their needs. From the living artillery of exocrines to the walking tanks known as carnifexes, every Tyranid creature has a specific purpose. Even their ships are simply gargantuan, space-bound devourers. 
coordinated by a sinister driving intelligence known as the Hive Mind. The Tyranids utilize swarms of expendable creatures, supported by fearsome monstrosities. Tyranid armies are very adaptable, able to tailor themselves to best fight any foe, though they become vulnerable if their leader beasts are eliminated. There are more factions. The Space Marines and Chaos Space Marines encompass several divisions and chapters within them, and we haven't touched on the Harlequins or the Gene Stealers. The first edition of Warhammer 40,000 was released in 1987. Over the 33 years since, each edition and each official licensed novel has added to the lore and timeline. New armies like the Tau and the Necrons have been added, and countless battles have been fought on tabletops by wargamers. It's such a popular system that 40k is synonymous with wargaming to many people. It has flagrantly borrowed influences from popular culture and history to populate its grim universe. But rather than becoming derivative, this cultural pick-and-mix has made it among the richest fictional franchises for storytelling out there. Grimdark, 40k's particular brand of gritty, nihilistic fantasy, has become a wildly popular subgenre itself. In recent years, much of Games Workshop's success has come from licensing this formidably successful franchise to video game developers. The 40k universe is a popular setting. It has an established and passionate audience. It saves a studio establishing a setting from scratch, and the framework for the conflict is already in place. To date, around 50 video games have been set in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Therein, perhaps, lies the secret to Warhammer 40,000's popularity. It's the most played war game because of the richness of its lore. In this article, we've just given you a flavour of it, with an overview of the various factions. The next time we visit the universe, we'll talk more about the mechanics and gameplay that make for such a rich gaming experience. In the meantime, if you're curious, many specialist wargaming shops around the UK host games regularly. And popping in to watch or browse is a lot cheaper than buying a whole army. Coppers and Cobblestones Running an Urban Crawl Campaign Prep work. What a dirty word. Of course, every games master in the world has had a session they've entirely ad-libbed after a week of just not having the energy to prepare. But to stay consistent and have a decent campaign, you do need to prep, otherwise eventually the players find you out. It's the part of the hobby that feels like homework, and I've yet to meet a games master who'd rather prep than just play the damn game. But this article is going to be about the most prep-heavy campaign of the Games Master's career so far. No random tables, except for the wandering monsters, because I'm old on the inside. No plot lines made up out of the ether that somehow work anyway. And absolutely no fudging. The dice land out in the open, no matter what. You see, I've got a bit of Dark Lord Fatigue. Anyone who's read Diana Wynne-Jones' Tough Guide to Fantasyland probably understands the reference. It occurs when you've been playing too many tabletop role-playing games that conform to the typical structure. A band of plucky murder hobos go around stealing and killing until they're high enough level for the games master to throw some evil bastard with a black cloak and spiky helmet in their way. He'll mess with them in non-fatal ways, give a few monologues and generally irritate the player characters to the point where they want to apply their usual brand of ultra-fast judgment to him. 
Rampant cynicism aside, that brand of heroics absolutely isn't the only way to run a campaign. In this article, I'm going to be laying out ways to build an urban sandbox to drop your players into. This could be the whole sandbox, or merely one segment of a continent or world, if you have the time and energy. The city itself is the beating heart of any urban crawl, and plotting a city requires a map. For my campaign, I decided to go for a classic and hunted down a digital copy of the map from 1978's City-State of the Invincible Overlord. The map in question has everything you could want from a sandbox. Alleys twist and fold in on each other. Buildings are labelled and stocked with every sort of business imaginable. Why is the spear maker next to a shop that sells nothing but cages? Capitalism. Probably. There is, however, a bit of a content issue. City-state is a setting that involves a great deal of slavery, akin to that of the Roman Empire. This may be a problematic subject for players and games masters alike, and although the Cleon system of Rome is pretty different to our modern perspective on slavery, it's still treating people's freedom as a commodity. In the setting I'm building for my campaign, slavery is used as an alternative to the prison system. This makes for a lot of free, poor-quality labour and a nice slew of plot hooks that the players will want to get tangled in. Again, though, emotive and political subjects should be brought up before any prep is done, so checking in with the players before the game is important. This is supposed to be fun, after all. For the prep, I'm using a programme called Legend Keeper which essentially combines a digital pinboard with an internal wiki for whatever world-building you'd like to do. The first fundamental step is uploading the city-state map and assigning a pin to every building and point of interest upon it. While incredibly tedious, this will make the later steps of actually creating content much easier. But what really defines content for a sandbox like this? The answer irritatingly, is up to you. Cleaving to the classic tropes and putting some catacombs under the city seems appropriate. Crime should be rampant because utopias are boring. Lots of colourful gangs, a la the warriors, for player characters to join, crush or otherwise deal with. Content itself is heavily influenced by whatever role-playing game you choose to run your campaign with. John Harper's Blades in the Dark is a beautiful system if your players want to be criminals and operate on a mission-based campaign structure. However, I'd like something a bit more old-school and open-ended. Enter Chris McDowell's Into the Odd, a superb, lightweight game that draws most of its DNA from the earliest editions of Dungeons & Dragons. Into the Odd is a system that emphasises all two human characters at early levels. Direct combat is likely to be lethal, but the speed of creating new characters means that players can jump back in almost immediately. This makes it a very useful system for our city sandbox, introducing new characters being as easy as stumbling into someone new on the street. It also means that encounters won't need to be fine-tuned to the nth degree, as players will be encouraged to think laterally and find alternative solutions to any obstacles. And this brings us to the heart of any good prep work for a campaign, the obstacles themselves. Obviously, every group of players will be different, and getting their buy-in should be the easiest way to have a fun campaign. But what kind of fun should be in a city sandbox? 
There's no such thing as incorrect fun, of course, but campaigns that have a focus on a few types of conflict are much easier to handle. And for a city campaign such as this, the two main sources of conflict are probably going to be social and physical. Social, because urban centres are rife with disparate groups who all want something from each other. And physical, because slinging swords never gets old. To make these conflicts intense and exciting, we arguably don't want a peaceful, well-run city. To quote a famous space monk, we want a wretched hive of scum and villainy. The kind of city you'd see on the news, usually with headlines involving the words food shortages or crippling drug epidemic. Of course, there are a number of real issues such as systemic poverty, gentrification and the war on drugs that might be too heavy going for a Saturday night dungeon crawl, but if your players are comfortable with it, the stories you can tell will be rich and fraught with drama and intrigue. Every city has a purpose. Our city will be a pleasure district, somewhere tourists flock in in order to indulge their fantasies and desires away from their humdrum home lives. This gives us as game masters a number of hooks to put in our urban sandbox. Tourists make for great kidnapping victims. But they can also be insensitive prats who cause fights and break things. Or, if the players are of a more larcenous mindset, they're superb marks for confidence schemes or simple back-alley robbery. The influx of tourists also shapes industry. Away from the main streets with their cheap trinkets and souvenirs, the aforementioned back alleys have all manner of illegal things that an outlander could partake in. Drugs, underground pit fights, exotic pets that definitely aren't juvenile bound demons. Again, plenty of disasters waiting to happen. But what if your players don't want to put out fires? What if they take one look at this great rotten city and decide it needs to go? That's even better. Depending on how obvious and violent the players want to be, the whole city could be turned into one great overland dungeon for them to destroy. I'd advise giving the players some kind of secure hideout, and a few non-player characters who are sympathetic to their cause. Playing fanatics or revolutionaries can be challenging, but very rewarding with the right playgroup. For my campaign, the players are going to be constables of the watch, working as a police force in a corrupt, decadent city where crime is the norm should give them a number of challenges to tackle or ignore. And ignoring these challenges definitely won't make them go away. Using the fronts system from Dungeon World, I can track a number of threats to the players, which I control, creating the illusion of a progressing world outside of what the players see and touch. Antagonists and allies have their own agendas, and those agendas should be at odds more often than not. Even the players don't have a unified goal. One already wants to go crooked and on the payroll of a crime boss within the city. Of course, any of my players reading this are going to be terribly paranoid of each other's characters selling them out. What a pity. Players killing each other isn't usually advised unless you're playing a game of paranoia. But a healthy dose of mistrust in other gamers can make the stakes even higher. At the end of the day, 
An urban call sandbox is going to be fundamentally different from your usual plotted campaign. Any heroics are going to arise organically and your underdog players could rise to remake the city or bring it crashing down forever. And to me, that will always be more interesting than even the best quest to take down a two-dimensional Sauron analogue. Mini of the Month The Machine is Willing The Adeptus Mechanicus and their tech priests speak of a machine spirit that inhabits each of our vehicles. This mechanised soul is to whom they appeal with their ministrations, caring for the metal hearts of each of their charges so they might serve the will of the Emperor and his Astartes. Whether you believe in the prayers and exhortations of these shepherds, they are effective keepers. And our brothers, the Tech Marines, are acknowledged as a necessary part of maintaining our strength as we battle for humanity on countless worlds. I do not seek proof of the Emperor's will and of the machine spirit, but when I walk in shadow amidst the mud and gore of battle, a glance to my left brings reassurance for I see the familiar shape of my friend as he growls and churns his way through the dirt. My brothers have named him Odin, after some ancient one-eyed god of old earth. He is old, it is true. The machine heart of him is far older than the battered shell that encases it. The Razorback transport design pattern is a relatively new acquisition from a copy of the standard template, redeemed from some unnamed colonial world. Odin is a Razorback, but before that, he was something else. Salvaged by the priest to live again, he wears this new body without complaint. But there is a rattle and hoarseness to him that reminds you he is a relic of some ancient war, reclaimed by faith and ritual to live again. I've taken shelter within Odin, allowing him to shield me and my marine brothers as we ride to battle the Emperor's foes. I've listened to the harsh words of his heart. Odin lives in pain, but he lives to serve. To be with him as he carries us to war is a sermon to us all. We must sacrifice all that we are so that humanity survives and the will of the Emperor is done. The Razorback Armoured Transport is a variation of the Rhino Transport and comes in a plastic kit from Games Workshop, allowing you to make either tank. However, this particular Razorback, whom I've named Odin, did not start out this way. Most of this model is made of plasticard. I had a few bits lying around in my box, including the outer side sections and front panel of a rhino, and decided to make a tank out of them, creating the remainder of the vehicle out of cut sections and green stuff. The tracks are extra pieces from a variety of Lehman Rust tank kits. They tend to include a little more than you need, and when you have a lot of tanks, the extra bits soon pile up. I have a lot of tanks. The back access door is a spare from a Land Raider, as is the turret, and the top hatch is an extra from an old Rhino Razorback kit. The Hunter Killer missile launcher and radar dish are also leftovers from other tank projects. The model is actually a little bigger than a standard Razorback, which was mostly down to my poor measuring. That meant a fair amount of green stuff being used to join everything together. When painting the model up, I dry brushed this with a black, a metal and a copper bronze to give the impression of welding and rust. The result is a transport model with a fair amount of character, and a few fewer bits in my box. Cosmic 
Cosmic Horror, the existential fiction we all need right now. In a recent interview with BBC Radio 4, sci-fi author and giant of cyberpunk William Gibson noted that society seemed to be averting our gaze from the future. How often do you hear anyone invoke the 22nd century? Even saying it is unfamiliar to us. We've come to not have a future. It's not madness to ask if we even have much of a future at all. Fans of seminal superhero deconstruction Watchmen by Alan Moore will be familiar with the Doomsday Clock. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, formed in 1945 by University of Chicago scientists who had worked on the Manhattan Project, created the Doomsday Clock to be an easily understood symbol, warning and reminder. The hands indicate just how close we could be to the end of civilization. On Thursday the 23rd of January 2020, the Doomsday Clock was set at 100 seconds to midnight. Closer to doom than ever before. For context, in 1952, shortly after the Soviet Union developed their own atomic weapons, the clock was set to two minutes to midnight. It's impossible to ignore the weight of significant change hugging the horizon of our future. Climate change, economic collapse, digital terrorism, large-scale civil unrest, antibiotic resistant superbugs, and possibly even nuclear conflict are just some of the challenges faced by humanity at present. As our understanding of planetary formation and exoplanetary detection has improved, it's become easier to argue that we're probably the singular example of sentient life in the universe, certainly in any contactable or reachable way. Aliens with fabulous technology aren't coming to save us. Indeed, the absence of elder races indicates that maybe it's not possible to develop fantastic technologies like warp drives at all. A worse prospect, maybe there have been other sentient races, but they've always managed to wipe themselves out, and self-destruction is the inevitable destiny of intelligent life. Even space travel is harder, more expensive and less exciting than we expected. The once glorious future of rocketing around the galaxy in personal starships has faded into taut, danger-riddled paroxysms of introspection and adrenaline, such as the Martian, Interstellar and Ad Astra. What happens when all we can imagine is a future we don't like? Who are we in the face of problems we struggle to imagine solutions for? The issues seem so large we can barely see the edges, let alone a way past them. What do we do? Looking backward is a convenient and appealing alternative. There's no doubt that there has recently been a massive surge in cultural nostalgia, from fashion to film, to politics. In fact, it seems unavoidable. The Duffer Brothers' Stranger Things is set in a 1980s that never was, and rode the leading edge of a tsunami of retro-inspired media that's still flooding Western culture. Recently, Star Wars suddenly resurrected Palpatine and the Empire after 40 years to finish off the Skywalker saga with a self-congratulatory nostalgic burp. Utopian fiction like Star Trek is increasingly looking backwards for reassurance. CBS's Picard wheeled out Sir Patrick Stewart and other fan favourites from well-earned retirement to lament over a broken federation that seems to have abandoned its principles. Later this year, Ghostbusters is set to resurrect the surviving original cast and dust off 30-year-old props in an attempt to trap the ghost of box office glory. The Marvel Cinematic Universe blasted to unprecedented success by using characters created decades ago to tell stories also written decades ago. Where is the future? The innovation? The confidence? Feeling bleak yet? That's a good place to start. It's time to talk about cosmic horror. The master of cosmic horror himself, H.P. Lovecraft, had a particular way of indicating that the story he was telling was only a small fragment of some larger tale. 
something extending far into the darkness beyond the edges. His 1936 short, The Shadow Out of Time, sees the protagonist Nathaniel possessed by alien Yith. During this possession, he finds himself in turn possessing a Yith body, able to discover snippets of information about them and their society. He realises that the Ithians are waiting until humanity dies off, and a subsequent superior life form evolves on Earth. They will then transfer the entire Yith society into these new host bodies, thereby allowing Yith society to avoid destruction. Nathaniel discovers that the Yith have actually already done this, and that they aren't restricted to linear time. The Yithian society he's been experiencing is actually some 250 million years in the past. All Nathaniel believed was once solid and important is revealed to be fragile and impermanent. And his sole objective becomes proving that what he experienced was real for his own peace of mind. Similarly, At the Mountains of Madness, 1931, also makes clear that human existence is a tiny slice of Earth's long and storied history. Lovecraft places humanity in a resting period in the history of the Earth, after more impressive civilizations fell or became dormant, and before better things evolve. 1928's The Call of Cthulhu claims, The great old ones who lived ages before there were any men are hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until the time when the great priest Cthulhu from his dark house in the mighty city of Rilie, under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway when the stars were ready. None of this is exhaustively detailed. It's almost sketched in as the protagonists deal with minute-to-minute survival. It's clear that Lovecraft saw no grand future for humanity, no galaxy-spanning empires or even much of a legacy for future civilizations. The last two decades have seen a resurgence in the popularity for the genre Lovecraft pioneered. These stories come from different cultures and are told in different media, but share the key vision of a protagonist beset by overwhelming forces that can barely be understood, let alone combated. Juji Ito's 1998 manga Uzumaki focuses on the fictional Japanese city of Kurozo-cho, where residents start to become infected with spirals, as Shuichi, the boyfriend of protagonist Kirie Koshima, puts it. This ranges from obsession to phobia. Imagine becoming phobic of your own fingers because of the spiral pattern on your fingertips, to full bodily transformation, as people mutate into giant snails, twist themselves into spirals, or find warty spiral growths emerging from them. No explanation is ever given, and the residents can do nothing to prevent the curse consuming the town. It's as though the very essence of reality is pressing spiral patterns into everything, even the way smoke rises and water runs through drains. 2013's Banshee chapter is inspired by Lovecraft's 1934 short, From Beyond, reimagining the original story's pineal gland experiments as part of the CIA's notorious Project MK Ultra. It opens with, All those that took part in the experiment experienced the same phenomena under the drug. They experienced something, out there, that came to them, met them halfway. The film centres on journalist Anne Rowland, who, by the end of the film, has realised just a few hints about some deeper reality. I know the truth now. I really wish I didn't. 2017's The Endless follows two brothers, Justin and Aaron, as they return to a UFO death cult they disconnected from as teenagers to get closure before the cult ascends. Initially, it seems the cult is a surprisingly benign, hippie-ish commune, and the brothers feel the longing to once again belong and to return to the comfort and warmth of its wholesome family atmosphere. However, it becomes clear that an unseen intelligence, possibly inspired by the giant invisible Waitley creature Lovecraft's 1928 The Dunwich Horror, is trapping people in bubbles of looping time for its own purposes. The cult has essentially learned to live with this entity, 
giving it what it wants in return for the veneer of a good life. Justin encounters a character stuck in a nearby loop who tells him, Don't ever give in, not once. The trick to this whole thing is to not be afraid of something that's horrifying. Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy isn't often called cosmic horror, but it features all the best hallmarks of Lovecraft's cosmicism. The trilogy depicts an area of North American coastline that's become changed. Named Area X by those that study it, teams that enter the area either don't return or return change themselves. The first book follows a team member known only as the biologist through her journals. Within Area X, she comes to realise that perception and reality are only vaguely related. The map is not the territory, or even close to it. The characters that get a glimpse of the real territory tend to be physically and psychologically altered by the experience. And even the stoic biologist finds herself coming unglued as she discovers more about Area X. The trilogy is an exploration of humanity in the face of unrelenting, unacceptable reality. Characters in cosmic horror generally start off with a firm grasp on who and what they are, and then, as the story progresses, they discover they are insignificant in the face of a much larger truth. Vandermeer's biologist is initially entirely and selfishly dedicated to her own world and her own viewpoint, before discovering that she's a nearsighted mayfly compared to the enormity of what Area X represents. As with Lovecraft's protagonists, the biologist, Justin and Aaron, and Roland and many supporting characters in each work all struggle to find stable ground as they grapple with the revealed truth of existence. Seems familiar, doesn't it? And this is why cosmic horror is what we need most right now. We assume mastery of our fates and that we're owed existence. We have convinced ourselves that we're the top of the food chain, the pinnacle of evolution, and patted ourselves on the back for our intelligence. Good cosmic horror forces a redefinition of humanity. It challenges those assumptions, makes us see on longer timescales, takes away control and puts us at the mercy of bigger things. It recenters us in the scheme of creation, much as Copernicus championed the idea that the sun, not the earth, is the centre of the solar system. Cosmic horror reminds us that we aren't masters, and that we're only part of something much larger, older and more complex. The biologist experiences a process of change in Area X, of transcendence. She goes from being a scientist, so wrapped in herself that her profession is her identity, to adopting a much wider perspective as part of existence, rather than simply an observer of it. She doesn't win. She doesn't fight off monsters and stand gloriously on a corpse, asserting her humanity and dominance over all things. She doesn't strap a flamethrower and a machine gun together and face the darkness with human ingenuity. She doesn't deduce the nature of the foe and find weaknesses to exploit it using superior human intelligence. All she can do is gain control of at least her own reactions and her own decisions. Learn what's valuable about herself and what's unimportant. And accept that change is necessary for survival. Faced with unprecedented challenges ahead, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy to want to imagine that the enemy is a larger-than-life villain, and the solution is to find a way to punch it really, really hard before returning to normal life. The truth is that this isn't going to happen. We can't punch climate change. We can't avert an antibiotic-resistant superbug by turning back time and killing it before it gets all the infinity stones. We can't superman all the nuclear weapons into the sun. Like the entities in cosmic horror, these threats to our future are lurking, hulking monsters that are too vast to fully understand. They thread Brobdingnagian tentacles through everything and have been working unseen for decades or more, above the notice of the teeming masses of myopic humans. Like the protagonists in cosmic horror, 
We're never going to build a power suit from scraps or inherit the legacy of alien superpowers. But we can survive. And we can face these challenges. But not by relying on a few superpowered individuals to save us and neatly return the status quo. Like many of Lovecraft's protagonists, we must accept that reality isn't what we thought or hoped. Like the endless Justin and Aaron, we must stop longing for the past and looking backwards to half-remembered, simpler times. Like Uzumaki's Kyrie, we might not manage to make a difference at all, and victory will simply be just living through the disaster. Like Vandermeer's biologist, we must find out how to adapt here, now, to this reality, to survive, to make sacrifices, and even to let go of some things in order to have a future. Or, like many characters in cosmic horror, we won't make it. Cosmic horror isn't about a glorious triumph born of a dazzling orgasmic display of peak humanity. It's very much the everyman solution. Messy, imperfect, often painful, plodding long-form survival. Just what we need. Let's talk about Star Trek Picard. Star Trek Picard began airing on Amazon Prime in January, bringing back the much-loved character more than a decade after his last screen appearance. In this issue, we discuss the first episode of the latest iteration of one of television's most durable franchises. My first thought was simply that the show looks incredibly good. It's not just that the, the CGI is cutting edge, the cinematography is more complex and engaging than the functional camera work I associate with the classic Star Trek series. From the vineyards of Chateau Picard to the open vistas of space, everything looks handsome, polished and convincing. I'm feeling conflicted. As a Star Trek superfan, I love all Trek in one way or another, but I found myself somewhat wary of Picard. The first episode left me with a distinct impression that the showrunners are heavily playing off nostalgia. And instead of creating a new Star Trek, I felt like I was watching a fairly generic, if amazingly well-made, sci-fi show that featured Sir Patrick Stewart painfully easing his way around the set. Star Trek The Next Generation always left a polished but distant impression on me. The better Kirk films were much more visceral and passionate. However... With Star Trek Nemesis, I began to feel the next generation film franchise was going in the right direction, in terms of big plot developments and character moments. Picard picks up where that left off, which I think is the right choice for the franchise. Hopefully, it can get out of its own way this time and deliver something fantastic. At the time of writing, we've only seen the first episode, so we don't yet know what the overall themes of the show will be. It's obvious, though, that this is a darker take on the Star Trek universe than the next generation. Star Trek is widely regarded as the most utopian of the big science fiction properties, but at this point the franchise has spent more time subverting Gene Roddenberry's idealised future than playing it straight, and Picard looks set to continue this trend. The episode dwells on the mistakes and prejudices of Starfleet and the wider Federation, which lead to Picard's resignation. It's difficult to tell at this point how far he may reconcile with his former employer or change it for the better. There were definitely interesting moments and hints of characters and themes I'd love to get to know more about. The Romulan couple living with Picard, for example. Right now, it seems like the series will be focusing on synthetic human rights and Picard working to correct the course of the Federation after it's apparently strayed. 
I can't say it feels like it's going to break any new ground in terms of the themes, but I hope to be surprised. The connections of the plot to all the previous incarnations of Trek were a sign of some really good writing. There's less of a digitally austere aesthetic, which is a massive positive. I also like that the show isn't using a contained episode structure. In The Next Generation, we got an occasional two-parter with some overarching elements, but series writing has moved on and the streaming medium allows writers to develop stories over a longer period. Patrick Stewart's central performance is as impressive as one would hope, providing a firm anchor for the series. Interestingly, it's not fundamentally very different than what he was doing in The Next Generation and its spin-off movies. Jean-Luc Picard has always been full of gravitas, someone you could really believe could alter the course of history with a single speech. Making him older only enhances the core appeal of the character for me. He can't run and fight like an action hero, but that was never the point. Viewers who are mostly interested in the series for its protagonist will not be disappointed. Beyond that, the setting was well-realised, the practicalities of life in the 24th century felt convincing and weren't overplayed. Modern CGI also enhances Star Trek's traditional rubber-forehead aliens. I enjoyed the attention to detail, which gave an alien character a constantly blinking, nictitating membrane. Agreed. It was cinematically brilliant. I always love seeing the non-Starfleet parts of the Star Trek universe. I enjoy seeing how civilians live and what life is generally like in the 24th century. I liked that the scenes allowed questions to develop, rather than raising them and solving them within a tight time frame. There are a massive amount of direct developments from all across the next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Abrams movie arcs. Picard doesn't fall into the trap of trying to solve everything it invokes, but instead acknowledges and incorporates, allowing the audience the pleasure of learning that their previous memories of these franchises are a part of what is to come. There are one or two continuity issues, but that's understandable. We don't often see stories that try to pull together elements from so many different prior sources. There was a lot of tell rather than show in the detailed exposition moments, but then the plot weave is complex, so they are working to handle a lot of elements. It was also obvious that Patrick Stewart is older and can't perform some of the action scenes that he used to. I loved him in sword-wielding mode in Excalibur, but even in the Next Generation series and films he was able to manage the fights when needed. Overall, I was impressed by the opening episode, but it did make use of a couple of tropes that I dislike. There's a trend in fantasy and science fiction to come up with an analogy to racism. Anti-mutant sentiment in X-Men, for example. And then put the prejudice in question in the mouth of a black character. And Picard's version isn't particularly egregious, but it still made me feel uncomfortable. A bigger problem for me was the show's apparent willingness to play the fridging trope absolutely straight. Named for the late 90s website Women in Refrigerators, fridging is when a female character is killed off in order to provide a male character with motivation. As with many things of this kind, the problem is not that any individual instance is outrageously sexist, but, but the aggregate effect is to privilege male characters' stories over female characters' existence. Picard, as a whole, felt too good to be using such a stale plot device. I can only hope that there's more to this storyline than first meets the eye. As a Star Trek nerd, there's a lot in the plot setup that I'm wary of. The core idea they seem to be leaning on, the idea of prejudice against synthetic life, or villainous rogue artificial consciousness, is heavily trodden ground. 
Westworld and Battlestar Galactica already did it, as did several other episodes of Trek. Films, novels, computer games, I could go on. Simply tackling the same themes with a Star Trek wrapper on them isn't going to be good enough. I'm fascinated by what happened to the Romulan people after the supernova. I feel like there are some brilliant and relevant stories that you could really get into there. Ideas around migration of displaced people struggling to find a place. Maybe how other civilizations tighten borders to prevent Romulan refugees seeking shelter. Those topics would be perfect for Trek to explore in detail. Sadly though, in the first episode, all that was rapidly glossed over in favour of comic book antics and mentions of a very generic synthetic rebellion. The continuity is a little shaky too. I'm assuming the supernova is the Hobus supernova, the instigating factor in the 2009 Star Trek film that destroyed the Romulan system. Interestingly, they seem to have changed it now to the Romulan sun rather than Hobus, a nearby star. I'm not sure if that's going to be significant, but it is puzzling. I'm also puzzled as to why the showrunners seem to have entirely forgotten the heavily oppressed slave species of Riemann people living on the planet next to Romulus, a pivotal part of 2002's Star Trek Nemesis. Presumably they too lost their homeworld, and it's odd they didn't at least get a passing mention. I'd have been far, far more impressed if Picard had a Riemann assistant instead of the attractive Romulan couple. I'm saddened that the Federation has essentially abandoned its principles. Again. As you noted, Star Trek is, at its core, about a future where humanity has evolved for the better socially and morally, so it's a bit disappointing that this feels like it's shaping up to be yet another tale of a few overwhelmingly light-skinned individuals retaining a moral compass where the faceless government fails to live up to its own guiding principles. Seriously, the cast of Picard is so white. Maybe they're saving all the people of colour up for later? Considering one of Picard's key characteristics is his inclusive thinking, it's ironic, in a disappointing way. I'm not getting the kind of visceral connection with Picard that I have with other science fiction shows. The modern Battlestar Galactica is one of my all-time favourite television series. I recently watched the Netflix remake of Lost in Space, and I found myself more engaged with that than Picard. I can't help but admire the work going on. The performances of the actors, the plotting, the scenes, everything. But for me, the show may still sit in the nice-to-watch category, rather than the must-watch category. So far, this is one of the few Trek series I've seen that I've been uncertain about from the start. I even loved Enterprise. I'm hopeful that the show will find its feet, though. A lot of Star Trek series start a little shakily. I'm looking at you, the next generation. So it's entirely possible that my initial reservations about Picard will evaporate over the next couple of episodes. At worst, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think it's interesting that I'm the least avid Star Trek fan of the three of us, and I like the show the most. <laughs> well, perhaps, as, as Louis said at the beginning, it's less of a Trek series and more a sci-fi drama that happens to centre on a Trek character. Regardless, I'll be watching the rest of Picard and hoping that it builds on the promise of its first episode and corrects some of its early mistakes. Review. Legends Untold. Tabletop role-playing games are great. My own regular board game night began as an RPG campaign until the twin challenges of group scheduling and prep time for the Games Master caused it to evolve into a board game night instead. Board games have the benefit of generally requiring no planning, and it doesn't matter if the attendees differ each week. However, sometimes you just miss creating a character, grabbing equipment, and embarking on an adventure into the unknown, which is where Legends Untold comes in. 
This is a cooperative dungeon crawl in a box. A series of adventures played out on a generated map with randomly discovered monsters and loot. At this point, I feel the need to clarify. I'll refer to the game as Legends Untold throughout, although there are actually two boxed products. Legends Untold The Great Sewers Novice Set and Legends Untold The Weeping Caves Novice Set. Gameplay-wise, they are essentially the same, and if one is better than the other, I haven't been able to tell so far. The contents of each differ, but the rules are common between them and they can be combined. Each adventure in Legends Untold is procedurally generated. The Games Master's role is fulfilled with an exploration deck, made up from encounters, enemies, loot and traps. The cards used will be a subset of a much larger deck, so even when replaying, it's unlikely you'll face the same set of encounters. In this way, Legends Untold provides the great unpredictability of a good roguelike game. Your character has a starting background, of which there are four in each box. These provide basic character stats and feature optional male or female art on either side of the card. Group members specialise their role in the choice of, first, a weapon, and then three talent cards. These talent cards provide themed skills and also track health and are flipped face down when damage is taken, reducing your performance until healing can be used. Three doesn't seem huge, but there is such a variety of different talent cards that each character build feels quite distinct. The core of the game is exploring the gradually unfolding dungeon. From each location card there is a choice of exits, each giving off a certain amount of light. Darker tunnels provide the chance to surprise foes, but make you more likely to blunder into traps and it's often harder to solve some puzzles. Brighter tunnels give better awareness, but a much lower chance to get the drop on your enemies. It's the location cards where the brilliance of the game emerges. As you enter, the randomly drawn map card indicates how to orient it against your chosen entrance, then shows a variety of features, such as obstacles that must be overcome to fully enter, a monster or challenge encounter, or both, and icons to represent natural resources, locked doors, or barrels to search for loot. Most dungeon crawlers with no games master focus on the tactical combat, loot, and character upgrading aspects. What I enjoy about Legends Untold is the pure dungeoneering, taking a gamble on how to enter the next room. Flavourful encounter cards, strange NPCs, mystical barriers and odd events all make it a mysterious and compelling experience. Legends Untold is not a story-rich adventure, and there aren't any miniatures. While each encounter card provides great flavour, there is little plot beyond the initial setup and target requirements for each dungeon. And, ultimately, it's a game of rolling dice. Every obstacle, locked door, magic barrier, NPC or monster is managed using a combination of card skills and a check against a skill value. This is a survival and resource management crawl, rather than a plotted adventure. Although, if you lend it your imagination, the emergent story arising from the events can be compelling. Monsters may be a single motionless card, but the tension when your target escapes combat and disappears back into the encounter deck is palpable. I have to mention the art by Scott Nicely, also the artist behind the Arkham Horror Living card game and Runebound. Each character, enemy and encounter card is unique and exceptional. Though small, they feature a glut of character and detail. Ultimately, Legends Untold punches well above its weight. It comes in a box the size of a fat hardback book which costs under £25 and that box is packed full of content. Each half of the set provides 20 pre-designed adventures, 
ten of which are strung together into a challenging campaign, and all of which feature the wonderful randomness which drives replay. There are enough item cards and additional skills to drive distinct character builds, levelling up opportunities, and, most importantly, variety. There are a mass of tokens to cover character buffs or debuffs, and little icons to mark the changing state of points of interest on the game map. It's easy to drop players in and out between adventures, and each mission takes about an hour to play. So for those evenings when you just want to party up, grab some weapons, and head into the unknown in search of adventure, Legends Untold is ingenious, lightweight, fast, and above all, easy to bring out on a game night. Review The Bestowal The Bestowal can be summed up as a conversation. One of those conversations where you lose track of time and find yourself discussing life, death, and everything in between. The 90-minute film by Andrew DeBerg can be classed as sci-fi, but it relies on its dialogue to carry the viewer. Expect no fancy CGI moments or grand fly-throughs of far-off lands, because honestly, they're not needed here. The film opens with Stephen, played by Sam Britton, a financially successful businessman, sitting in a dark room. His only comforts a glass of alcohol and a gun, which he intends to use on himself. Out of nowhere, a visitor appears to intervene, an interdimensional being who takes the form of a beautiful woman played by Sharmita Bhattacharya. She engages him in conversation about a wide range of topics, including good and evil, human nature and technology. The film is split into four acts, each with its own distinct feel and tone. A constant throughout, however, is a beige colour scheme, this and the simplistic nature of the cinematography serve multiple purposes. They keep the viewer's focus on the dialogue and also reflect one of the themes of the film, that technology is ruining our lives. We don't need complicated technology in order to enjoy life, the bestowal argues, and equally the film doesn't need distracting camera angles and complex lighting in order to tell its story. The narrative takes place over the course of around 40 years, and while it may seem jarring that the characters don't visibly age, this is explained through various plot devices. The explanations are believable and fit in with the world Zuberg has created. The musical score is applied sparingly, enhancing the sections that need it and letting silence take over, where appropriate to good effect. It takes great skill to hold a viewer's attention during lengthy periods of spoken dialogue, and the on-screen chemistry between Britain and Bhattacharya achieves this. This writer was reminded of the 2013 film Gravity, in which the story is told through an extremely narrow focus on the main character rather than the surrounding events. In The Bestowal, we hear about Stephen's experiences, travels, revelations and enlightenment. The message that true contentment cannot be bought and that helping others is the best way to help yourself expands on the quote from Plato, which opens the film. Caring about the happiness of others, we find our own. While the film opens on a dark note, during its second act, the relationship between the two characters develops and changes the nature of their respective existences, culminating in an emotional third act which plays out in real time. A testament to de Burr's writing skill. 
The fourth and final act provides closure for both sides and leaves the viewer with questions to ponder. The bestowal could be considered a film for thinkers. The film's message is uncontroversial and one wonders whether there is much replay value here, but it is worth watching nonetheless. Holding the viewer's attention during a dialogue-based film for 90 minutes is impressive. Recommended to those who enjoy more cerebral films. Live streaming tabletop role-playing games. A new immersive experience. Wax Steven is voiced by Tom Grundy. Tabletop role-playing games now have supporting technical tools that enable the entire game-playing experience to be shared online, streaming the role-playing action whilst also displaying the game's status and mechanics. This enhances engagement with the watching viewers, who get to see the full picture of the gaming world. We look at this developing phenomenon and speak to an experienced games master to find out more. Tabletop role-playing is becoming increasingly popular. The move from role-playing games being the hobby of fringe groups has been a gradual process since the 1990s. With an increasingly sophisticated palette of fantasy, science fiction and horror, it was only natural that role-playing would eventually gain a wider audience. Whilst role-playing games have always traded on the imagery around popular movies, books and other media, there have been a profusion of specific crossovers with major film and television franchises, becoming the setting for adventures. This probably started with Middle-Earth role-playing in 1984 and the incredibly popular Star Wars The Role-Playing Game, shortly after in 1987. In 2016, the 1983 Expert Edition of Dungeons & Dragons formed a core part of Season 1 of the Netflix drama Stranger Things, so it was only natural that a Stranger Things-themed version of D&D would be published soon after. We also now have systems created using the themes of popular sci-fi TV series like Firefly, Babylon 5 and Battlestar Galactica. There are crossovers between gaming and screen too, with film franchises like Final Fantasy, based on the RPG of the same name, and Elite Dangerous being developed into the Elite Dangerous role-playing game by Spider-Mind Games. Now championed by celebrities like Vin Diesel and Deborah Ann Wall, there are a profusion of role-playing campaigns being streamed online in series like Critical Role and Relics and Rarities, all making use of YouTube, Twitch and a variety of other online platforms. One such successful platform for these programmes is Table Story, run by a quartet of Twitch streamers Brad Woto, Brotato, Pumpkinberry and Wax Steven. It hosts a multitude of shows, including Reaper Relay, an intergalactic adventure in the Mass Effect universe, Dying Order, a D&D 5th edition fantasy drama, Zero Blue Orion, which is based on the Lancer system, and Witchcraft and Wizardry, a Harry Potter-themed game built on Powered by the Apocalypse. Many of the shows on Table Story are long-running series. At the time of writing, Zero Blue Orion has had 35 weekly episodes, each one containing around three hours of gameplay. 
This provides ample time for character development and multiple gaming scenarios, as the players explore their world according to the rules of the gaming system being used. Lancer, upon which Zero Blue Orion is based, has been around since 2017, and a PDF version is available for free from the publisher's website. The setting is all about massive mechanised cavalry units and the pilots who crew them. In contrast to the lasers and aliens of Zero Blue Orion, Witchcraft and Wizardry takes place in the wonderful, magical setting of Hogwarts. This brings a different atmosphere as the student characters develop their personalities, obtain their wands, and explore the castle and its grounds. We're still early in the series, ten episodes in so far, but it's shaping up very nicely indeed, and not that much to catch up on if you want to get up to speed with it. We caught up with Wax Stephen, the GM of Doom, who happens to be Games Master for both Zero Blue Orion and Witchcraft and Wizardry. Thanks for joining us, Wack. How did you get into tabletop role-playing and online streaming? I've been a gamer my entire life. We're talking way back to the Commodore 64 and early Nintendo days. Eventually, I became an esports broadcaster for Warcraft 3, Starcraft... Unreal Tournament 2003, Enemy Territory, and StarCraft II. In 2013, I saw my first game of the Dragon Age RPG being played on Will Wheaton's tabletop show, and this transformed everything. I got into D&D, I played RPGs with friends, and because of my experience with broadcasting, such as the Kings of Tin show, I started streaming the games on Twitch too. What software do you and the players use to support your games? It varies very much on the show and what's required to support it. For instance, we use CompCon to support Zero Blue Orion. Roll20 underpins the gameplay and allows viewers to see the results of dice rolls. But I also have open broadcaster software for streaming, various PDF reference files open in Acrobat, GoXLR for show sound effects, and an Elgato stream deck for switching between scenes. Do you have to do anything different for the online element of these games compared to running a traditional game? A lot. There are three distinct ways of playing tabletop games to consider here. For us, we're streaming a show. Others might just be playing the game online. And then there's the traditional tabletop way, all together in person. The show is all about production. Timing. Have we been on a topic too long? How much combat do we need? How long until we have a break? About the players. How are they feeling? The schedule? It's a weekly show. Is the development and pace right? And finally, ensuring that the experience is immersive for everyone, including the viewers. You've written Witchcraft and Wizardry from scratch and made it available to download for free. What was the inspiration for this? And do you have any tips for games masters who might be interested in running their own Witchcraft and Wizardry game? Of course, I created Witchcraft and Wizardry because of my interest in Harry Potter. I wanted to make a system that is easy to understand, and existing systems didn't capture the essence of Harry Potter for me. They were very statistics-based. I wanted it to be more about the narrative, the students, and the story. I also wanted to ensure it was easy for kids to understand. Everyone on the show latched onto it very quickly, with little explanation from me. For Games Masters, the system is a skeleton and has ways to generate things, like creatures and villains, easily. My tips would be to focus on your players and the kind of story they want to do. Figure out how much time you have. Is it just a one-off session? A handful of sessions? Or is it going to be a long-term, weekly event? Where do you want to be in the evolution of the characters? 
What school year do you want to set the experience in? Is there anything you can share about upcoming witchcraft and wizardry scenarios that the players will face? Without spoilers, of course. The players drive this game. How they react to things will determine how the show will progress. All I'll say is that I hope we'll be running for multiple school years. Thank you, Wack. For aspiring games masters, these shows are a great educational tool. An experienced games master like Wack Steven makes it look easy. He has the knowledge of the systems being used and the creativity and the tools in his arsenal to keep the story development moving at an appropriate pace, as well as to answer player questions and make decisions when required. Seeing how he mentors and guides the players is quite the spectacle. Not to mention his impressions. But the star of these shows are undoubtedly the player characters. There tend to be four or five core players who remain throughout the series. Due to holidays or other commitments, there are times when a particular player may not be available, and trusted stand-ins can come in to maintain a critical mass with a new temporary or recurring character. This works really well, as there's a consistency and continuity, but also variety as the game evolves. Each of the players tends to have their own presence on Twitch and their own fan bases built around their respective content, and of course they bring their own unique personalities too. Watching the interactions between the players as they explore both themselves and their environment is entertaining and at times hilarious. Two of the five regular players in Witchcraft and Wizardry are UK-based content creators. Zgoticus, who plays the role of Alexander Pippin, a Harry Potter-esque name if ever I heard one. And Hello, it's Colo, who plays Maisie Schuyler. The UK certainly has a footprint in this tabletop streaming landscape. The community is what differentiates Twitch, and indeed other streaming platforms, from a traditional broadcast media format. It brings an interactive element between streamers and viewers, and indeed between the viewers themselves. Many platforms are designed for this, but also require the content provider to tailor what they produce to include their interaction with the audience as part of the programme. Geek and Sundry, the incredibly popular multimedia production channel, was founded by Felicia Day in 2012 after the success of her YouTube miniseries, The Guild. Since then, it has produced a variety of different shows, including Will Wheaton's Tabletop and a host of different role-playing game series. With the emphasis on a polished production, Geek and Sundry established a lot of the basic principles which many other streaming role-playing game groups tend to follow. There's also a trend to be more engaged and connecting directly with viewers as they watch, encouraging people to comment and give their opinions as the campaign progresses. On Twitch in particular, communities build up around the content creators. Viewers support the streamers, some of whom make this their full-time profession, by subscribing to the channel and making donations using a platform-specific currency called Bits. These contributions not only support the streamer financially, but in aggregate unlock additional platform features for the streamer, which in turn provide rewards for the community. One of the rewards that Twitch channel subscribers obtain access to is a set of emoticons that can be used in the accompanying chat. Stylized symbols that can be used to express joy, disappointment, sorrow, surprise, and indeed anything that the community might recognise, including in-jokes. 
Emoticons can be used not only in the channel of the Twitch streaming roleplayer to which they belong, but across all of Twitch. And with that, the channel's atmosphere is brought to Table Story during these events by that community. This brings the interactive chat to life in the most glorious visual way, as you see the waves of enthusiasm expressed graphically during character roleplay. Each of the participating role players has their particular set of emoticons, and you end up with a wholesome collaboration and visual mishmash as viewers support each other and the unfolding story. So the combination of tabletop role-playing and internet streaming services has enabled the creation of a new type of entertainment show, with participants and contributions from across the globe. It's live, interactive, cooperative, fun, rewarding. With some brilliant role-play and storytelling to boot, what's more, you're actually part of it. We encourage you to go and check out some of these shows and join in with the communities. Table Story can be found at www.tablestory.tv, where you can also download Wax Stevens' witchcraft and wizardry materials. The full archive of Table Story content can be found on YouTube at www.youtube.com slash tablestory, so you can catch up. We hope that this exploration of the magical world of live-streaming role-playing unlocks the door to a whole new set of experiences for you. Aloha Mora. Know your community. The Fantasy and Sci-Fi Readers' Lounge. The words of Sherilyn Dias and Rennie St. James are voiced by Jamie Sugar. This is our regular feature in which we get to know communities around the world and the internet dedicated to celebrating escapism. In our January issue... We caught up with one of Facebook's largest Dungeons & Dragons communities. In February, we got to know one of the stalwarts of London's wargaming scene. This issue, we chat to Sherilyn DS and Rennie St. James, administrators of the Fantasy & Sci-Fi Readers' Lounge, a 2,100-member strong community group dedicated to sharing great books. Hello and welcome. Thanks for talking to us. What prompted the creation of the Fantasy and Sci-Fi Readers' Lounge? The Fantasy and Sci-Fi Readers' Lounge was the result of several fantasy and sci-fi authors coming together to create a place for readers to interact with one another and with the authors themselves. The goal was simple, help readers find their next new favourite author. We are now celebrating our one-year anniversary with many reader and author members, and we hope to enjoy many more years. What was the goal? Most authors struggle with marketing and many readers struggle with the large to-be-read pile. We like to think we help ease the burdens for both with the Reader's Lounge. What challenges have you come across? It truly doesn't feel like work when you're playing games, voting in polls, discussing classic favourites and meeting new author and reader friends. Yes, there can be issues, as social media is an open forum. However, we have clear and fair rules we follow. This keeps things simple and efficient. It is a joy to hang out with our fellow bookworms and authors. Is the group mainly for sharing book recommendations, or is it for members to share their own works? In the Reader's Lounge, our authors can utilise weekly and monthly posts to share book news, sales, blog posts, good reviews, teasers, and more. We also have author takeover parties each week. These parties follow a theme, but also include openings for cover reveals and new releases. We are always open to readers' posts and encourage members to share favourite books, reviews and request recommendations. 
As we are fantasy and sci-fi focused, we also appreciate relevant news stories, memes, movies, and more. It's a really fun place to chat with like-minded bookworms. What's the geographical scope of your group? We seem to be the strongest in the United States and Australia. However, we have members in many other countries. For New Year's Eve, we had several members post when their clock struck midnight, and it was fun to see so many comments from so many countries. What's been the most memorable moment on your page since its creation? That's a tough one, as we've had many great events led by so many wonderful authors and readers. Our collaboration with Our Right Side PsyCon, an online book festival that took place in May 2019, and co-hosting of the 12 Days of Christmas book buying were wildly popular. However, the one-year anniversary celebration was something very special. Do you ever find the same books being suggested by members? Even with the fantasy and sci-fi focus, we rarely see repetition. Our lounge themes highlight everything, from heroes and villains to reverse harems, steampunk, vampires, shifters, fairies and romance, to name just a few. Our readers are fantastic at sharing sales and new release information to always help us find new reads. What three books would your group recommend to our audience? Only three? That's a tough one that I'm not sure we can answer. It might be best if you just join us in the lounge and see what our amazing authors and readers suggest. Do your own competitions for your members. We have a monthly writing challenge for our authors in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Author Support Group and are currently working to set up reader challenges in the lounge. What can a prospective member expect to get out of joining the lounge? If you enjoy any subgenre in fantasy or sci-fi, you'll find friends with the same interests, meet authors writing books you'll want to read and possibly be encouraged to try new subgenres too. We have strict rules on self-promotion, so you won't be bombarded by such posts. Instead, we like to play games and chat about our favourite things. While authors are readers and can enjoy those aspects of the lounge, they can also get their name out to new readers in a fun, laid-back group. We don't like drop-and-go links. We love chatting and sharing. If you could change anything about the book publishing world, what would it be? That's a great question. We'd like to encourage the writing community slogan of other writers are not my competition. We'd like to celebrate our friends' successes, learn together and simply enjoy books. Does your group have links with any other communities like yours? It is the close bond with the fantasy sci-fi author support group that truly defines the lounge and makes it something special. Do you have any future projects your group is planning and that you're able to tell us about? We are excited about our upcoming anthology projects. These are being managed by our sister group, the Fantasy Sci-Fi Author Support Group. You'll definitely want to keep in touch as we begin releasing those. Otherwise, it's always a fun day in the Reader's Lounge. Does anyone really need anything more than books, pets, friends, chocolate and coffee or tea to be happy? Check us out and join the fun. Where else can readers find you? We are currently active on Twitter, at AuthorFSF and Instagram, FSF underscore readers underscore lounge. Plus, we have a brand new website, fsfreaders.com. Our members also post on these sites and on Tumblr with the hashtag FSFRL. Thank you for your time, and we wish you all the best for the future. Original Fiction Echoes a Tale Told Under Protest by Bard Hero J. Kilorno of Travis Waypost, approximately three weeks from the borders of the Commonwealth.
I love telling tales. Tall ones, usually. Some, though, you just don't tell, right? Public safety is something of a joke these days, but sometimes you got to pass on the warnings. This one came to me in the strangest of ways. Two weeks before my last ship out as crew of the Liu Chan Yu, a passenger ship chartered to pick up a group way out in the deep black. I was getting some last carousing in. The bar was not unlike this one, though maybe the drinks were a little less watered down. I had a sweetheart who lived a couple of levels up. I was out for a stiff nona got chatting with a grizzled-looking trader just back from what smelled like a few years on Long Haul. Her name was Saji, and she told me she'd just done a Jovian run. (laughs) I couldn't let that one pass. Back then, I wasn't yet a bard, but I still loved to hear tales told and living history passed on. Saji told me at length how they'd been hired by some consortium of resource traders to shuttle out a flat-pack station to Jupiter then fill up with all the resources they could hold and come on back. Obviously, that's a really strange request. Why pay a human crew for the years-long voyage when you can just send a drone hauler out there or pay the Zillix to do it for you? After all, they don't really care where they're going or how long it takes. Anyway... Whatever the reason, the consortium paid a time-delay secure deposit in advance. So, strange already, right? The crew didn't know, or care, really, what was going on. I mean, a job's a job. (laughs) The Vini balance loaded into their accounts meant that when they got back, they'd all be able to take a few years off and live the good life. (laughs) Hell, pay someone to have a good time for them if that's what they wanted. The tales she told of what the crew got up to on the trip out there would make your hair straighten. They had a small colony cluster of Zillix on the roster, so really the rest of the crew didn't even have to worry about maintenance or repairs on the less accessible parts. Genevieve, the bulk hauler's name, was one of the old K-types, with the twin hab toroids around the hauling core, so the crew had plenty of space. More of a mobile hab rather than a hauler. Ah. Nice, comfy assignment. Apparently, everyone took on secondary jobs to keep themselves busy. My new friend told me she'd been working on her doctorate for pretty much the whole trip out. They arrived at Jupiter, met up with the transfer crew, or Zillix, of course, and did the cargo transfer. She showed me the vid and photos she'd taken out there. I know, there are plenty of people out that far, but actually meeting someone in the flesh that's been out there and stood in the shadow of that immense planet is is really something else. But it's when she got to the part about the return trip, things took an even more interesting turn. Now, I'll relate this as best I can now, since I can see that light in your eye and my glass is still full. The Genevieve was about a year into the return trip, loaded to the deck plates with rare materials mined from the Jovian province, plus local items of exotic heritage the crew had bartered and traded for. Saji told me in detail about the beautiful fabric she'd bought and her plans to have a whole wardrobe made from them when she finally got back to the Commonwealth and what she called real tailors. So, things were good, 
the crew was well settled in and things were going as smoothly as you'd expect for 200 plus people trapped in a spinning metal tube for a few years. Then they picked up a beacon from something they weren't expecting to be there. Saji wasn't on the command staff, so she missed the first part. Her story picked up when the tannoy chimed with an update for the whole crew. The command staff have decided to launch a series of probes to investigate a derelict not too far off their current path. Saji was one of the Waldo operators, so she was deeply involved from this point forward. I didn't detect any deception in her story, and if anything else, she seemed reluctant to share the full details with me. It took quite a bit of persuading. And by that I mean running up my tab at the bar, something fierce. They dropped a few drones on Fastburn and took a couple of weeks to match vectors with the derelict, but obviously they got plenty of images feeding into the control centre during the decel burn. The derelict that they came to know as the Kiraman Katabin was one of the many colony transports that set out for the Oort Cloud generations ago. Most people don't realise how many colony ships have headed out to the deep edges of the system over the last couple of thousand years. I'm not sure there's actually a a full list anywhere, but most people know their big names, of course, the ones that found something amazing or were lost spectacularly. But the majority either quietly went dark or arrived wherever they were going and just got on with the business of living. Kiraman Katabin was one of those ships, the ones that went dark, that is. As the probes dropped in towards the dark hulk, all they knew that it was massive. A stubby drama midships was the living space. Best guess from LIDAR returns was a crew and a passenger complement of maybe 50,000. The drive section was on the end of a two-kilometre-long spine made of cargo containers, tanks and storage bays. Up front was a big mushroom umbrella shield you only ever see on those long-haul ships. Genevieve herself sported one. It's hard you went into detail about that. I'll, I'll spare you the info dump on particle density and micrometeor impact. <laughs> I mean, to people who've only ever seen local ships in the Commonwealth, these monsters are really something else. I mean, big enough to be counted as a station in their own right with everything you would need for decades without resupplying. If you went light on crew, you could load up even more supplies and support systems and go fully self-sufficient. It's this type of engineering that got humans to other stars. I don't want to open that kind of worm's mind. I know the stories. I hear people saying the colonies are all a big hoax, probably, probably better than you, but that's for another time. So the probes dropped in and finally Saji and her team took over and manually plotted separate intercept and data gathering missions. They had a good few months before the Genevieve passed the point where the light delay would make the data return bandwidth too thin, so they settled in for a nice, cautious exploration. They had nine probes working on it, so pretty hefty investment there. Saji described the feeling of plugging into the sentry feed from the probe and getting the full virtual display. They were geared for a decent input and the computer interpolation of the environment was good enough. So, once the probes had done a few weeks of scanning the exterior, they could go in and examine details in full virtual. She described how seeing the welds on the hull plating gave her a chill, thinking that whoever laid that bead must have been dead for a few hundred years, at least. <laughs>
The team worked over the hull carefully, but nothing major showed up. No blown out sections or floating corpses like you get in those drama shows. No alien pods clinging to the hull menacingly. Uh, It looked like you could slide on into the control station and fire up the reactors and sail off into the deep to finish the mission. She said it was like the ship was just waiting. Another week went by and they finally ran out of things to look for. The drive cones were intact, no external damage. It was just, well, it's just dead and cold like someone turned everything off. The only strange thing that they just couldn't get past was the course it was on. The ship it was pretty much at a dead stop. It was impossible to plot the vector back or forward to see where it was trying to reach, and as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, stopping a ship that big is not something you do unless you really, really mean it. There was quite a lot of debate amongst the crew whether the ship actually would have had enough reaction mass on board to come to a relative stop like that without using a gravity assist manoeuvre. Apparently, the navigation team did some rough plots and came up with some pretty wild ideas about how you do it if you really wanted to. Saji was clear, though. No one would have done it accidentally or without very good reason. They finally popped the hatch and took the probes inside. To add to the pile of mysteries, the cylinder wasn't spinning, of course, but most had assumed it had slowed and stopped by a friction or maybe vacuum welding of the bearing with no crew to maintain it. <laughs> that wasn't the case. When they got some local power fed back into the control systems, the readouts they were able to spool back to the Genevieve showed the hab cylinder was deliberately stopped. Again, extremely odd. And that's not something you'd want to do, except in extreme emergencies. Then, well, the more they looked, the fewer emergencies they found. So, the probes went deeper, and the team walked through the halls and public spaces and what used to be gardens and living quarters of the crew in virtual. They found vacuum-frozen food in many places, like some of the crew was sitting down to eat when whatever it was happened. They found all the detritus of lives being lived, just as though the people on that ship had literally vanished mid whatever it was they were doing. Sarge's team reactivated the reactors, which were in good condition, just turned off, and were finally able to access the main computer systems. They downloaded as much as they could, and the whole crew of the Genevieve spent weeks poring over every scrap of data. The puzzle had consumed them all by this point. It was was all anyone ever talked about. The biggest mystery they found is that all the records, the logs, the data were all just stopped around the same time across the whole ship. They found letters half-written, diary entries partially completed. They even found video logs and voice recordings that just stopped abruptly. The conclusion was a total computer system failure, because it was the only thing that made sense so far, but that didn't answer everything.
The probes kept going through the ship. Now, remember, this thing was massive, but the manifest claimed 35,000 people on board at the time of the incident, whatever that was. The manifest also listed at least 10,000 other sentients, mostly simian and cephalopod forms, although the Kiraman Katabian was from the Empire originally, so none of these were listed as crew. It, um, it took another two weeks to find them, or at least some of them. Sardi didn't go into much detail, and I got the feeling she left out a lot more than she included. She told me how they were all in one of the large warehouse holds that served as an export junction from the storage pods along the spine into the hab cylinder. The warehouse had been emptied, and the doors welded shut from the inside. There were around 900 crew in there, all vacuum, frozen, and, according to Saji, the limited analysis the probes could perform showed they'd all died of suffocation. There was no sign of struggle or any particular conflict. The bodies seemed to have died sleeping. Some were still clutching books or slates or soft toys. Nothing the Genevieve crew found in there suggested what might have happened to the rest of the crew or any of the service sentience of which no sign was found. The probes kept going, increasingly relying on the AI to guide them through the ship, room by room, as the Genevieve got further and further away. Finally, the crew set the probes to come back, a chase that would take many months, but they left a derelict ship transponder, so at least it was less of a navigation hazard to whoever passed nearby in future. It's still out there. The Kiraman Katabin and those frozen bodies are still there, clustered in the warehouse, sleeping forever. The crew of the Genevieve went over every bit of data pulled from the ship over the subsequent few months, and many of them spent longer and longer sessions immersed in the simulations of the derelict composited by the probes, walking through the cold hallways and dead spaces. Finally, the command staff restricted access to the files. Efficiency was plummeting, and the ship's doctor was reporting a huge increase in incidents of depression. Paranoia and anxiety. The amount of sleeping agents she was prescribing was threatening to wipe out the entire ship's supply before they got halfway home. That didn't help. The crew continued to spiral into a dangerous level of collective depression. The command staff, no doubt equally affected by this mysterious malediction, responded slowly to the crisis, and Saji told me of the many things that should have been picked up as warning signs. Then, the first person died. One of the crew deliberately closed the airlock and vented his long-time friend and colleague into space, apparently for no real reason. He then tried to get into the airlock once it was finished cycling and do the same to himself. The security team had managed to shake themselves out of their torpor and arrived in time to stop him. The cameras caught everything, of course. They sent a 
wave of shock over the whole crew and morale plummeted even further. By the time the third person committed suicide, Saji said she herself was questioning everything. We didn't talk too much about what it was like, but she described how even the ship itself, her home for several years, seemed darker and colder. She told me that the Genevieve started looking shabby. The crew always kept the old ship running beautifully, always maintained, and everything squared away. Saji said it was a lovely place to live. The bee toroid was largely given over the green spaces, not only growing crops, but also small parks and cosy little sheltered orchards that made it feel like you're in a much larger space. Those plants tended for what must have been a hundred years or more. They started to die. Eventually, the stink of rotting vegetation was being circulated through the whole ship and added to the awful last few months. Saji told me that if the voyage had lasted much longer, she thought most of the crew would have followed her three companions to an early cremation. The final death was a systems tech called Keith Yowali. Saji didn't really know the man properly, but on a crew that small, everyone knows everyone to some degree. She recounted his discovery in a trance-like monologue, devoid of emotion, like like she was given a report. Yowali had been isolating himself a lot, like most of the crew, and by the time anyone found him, it was far too late. He'd apparently hacked the surgical suite to liberally dismantle him, bit by bit. Saji said the doctor's report claimed Keith had worked the programming to keep him alive during a large portion of the... surgery. Mixing a cocktail of chemicals into the procedure seemingly designed to keep him conscious. The command staff immediately locked it down, hoping to keep the full details from the rest of the crew especially any images of the sculpture that Keith had made out of himself. The final stage of the journey passed in a kind of reverie of dread. They held themselves together with the thought they'd only be in the ship just another year and a bit, then a few months, then weeks, then finally a few days. Only when they were so close to Commonwealth space... They were almost able to see the cluster of habitats in the telescopes did Saji let herself begin thinking of her life beyond that ship. Saji said they'd been back in port only about a week or so and she'd spent most of that time in guest quarters. She said right from the very first morning she woke up on the station she already felt better. Medical staff had no explanation for what happened. Apparently everyone was perfectly normal. No drugs present in their systems other than the ones prescribed by the ship's doctor. Certainly, the Saji I met that night seemed fine. Maybe a little haggard. And maybe there were bags under her eyes and a bit of a haunted look to her. But that's as far as any signs of mental instability went. I didn't really try to look into it at the time. After Saji finished her story, we all sat in silence for a while. She gathered a small group through the evening, and I'm fairly sure she hadn't paid for a drink since she started talking. Then someone cheered and clapped her on the back, complimenting her on her well-told tale. 
That broke the silence. And the next patron started telling a story about the T3 cluster being haunted by ships from some long-forgotten war. Now, this is long before the Zilix took over, you understand. Now, the rest of the evening was lost in a haze of alcohol. Maybe Saji and the Kiriman Katabin is why I went on to become a bard. Travelling taverns, collecting stories and passing them on. Maybe the fate of the ghost ship is really another story. After all, as far as anyone knows, it's still out there. Waiting. I often wonder how many other ships investigated the Kiriman Katabin and didn't make it back home. Maybe there are child ghost ships out there, all with their own haunted tales of strange malaise sweeping the crew. Maybe it was the Genevieve's intellectual and dedicated crew that saved them. Or maybe it made it worse, and most crews wouldn't investigate as thoroughly. All I know is that this tale isn't finished. Transcribed from archival records by Joanne K. Trimble. Historian, June 30th, in the year 6595. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds, Issue 7. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddles, Jamie McKinnon, Jane Cluett, Karen Fishwick, Lewis Calvert, Mike Smith, Nick Cummins, Sam Long, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy. With special thanks to Cherylyn Dias, Rennie St. James and Wax Stephen. It was edited by Alan Stroud, Jane Cluett and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kareem Cromfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding, Kai Zen and Tom Grundy and was edited by Ashley Devine and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our patrons for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.